documented. Miracles happening today. Are we ready? You're really uh, scratching at the bottom of the barrel, I guess. Yeah, right. Today, we have the one and the only David Cutter. This is my husband, if y'all don't know that. Just a little introduction. I am so excited to document his testimony. It's just one of my favorite stories. I love it. It's just such a crazy story. I think largely the reason that I love it so much is because it's kind of unbelievable. You meet David and he's really smart. He's just, you kind of picture that he was the nerd in high school. And then he has this insane psycho juice. This is how I explain it, <laughs> is the psycho juice part about him. And I think part of the reason I married him is because I couldn't figure him out. <laughs> she married me to learn yeah I, who I'm I am. still I'm still trying but truly I remember just being like man I can't wrap my head around him like he owns his own business he's really confident he's not cocky he's really funny he's outgoing he was really into politics and he always knows random facts and I <laughs> I fact check him and he's telling the truth and I have no clue where he learns it or how he stores it in his mind. Anyway, so I'm excited that he's on today. Pretty flattered by the introduction, even coming from you, hun. But I, I guess we'll go back and just kind of visit where I came from, sort of how I got to today. I was raised in a very moral home. Parents were faithful members of their church, involved in evangelism and ministry very much eager to see souls saved and to me was always secondary to whatever else I had going on in my life. There was always a little bit of shame that I felt because of the reproach of the gospel. And so it was always like, yeah, my parents make me go <laughs> to that church. <laughs> you know, I go to the potter's house, but it's not because I want to, it's because my parents go there. Anything I was really involved in as a kid was really just because I was trying to front that I had some kind of relationship with God. What Nothing. kind of things would you be involved in as a kid? My parents were heavily involved in, in drama ministry, and that included things from out-of-town plays. They would travel across the Southwest performing gospel-themed plays. They also were involved in, our church does annually, they do a haunted house. My parents would be heavily involved in that for many years. Just different elements of evangelical outreach ministry that if you're from the Potter's House Fellowship uh, that I'm from, you'd be very familiar with. Just every Saturday night, we would have a downtown music and drama venue where the gospel is preached at the end. So you would land a role in some of these dramas because of who you were and you would be involved. Yeah. So my, my level of involvement, it evolved and it, and it would ebb and flow based on what the situation was. I, I found it fun at times to be in a, a skit or a play. I, I never was doing it because I wanted to see people saved. I did it because of, you know, maybe pressure from, my, my parents, I wanted to front that I was a Christian that cared about soul winning. There was an element of this is what I do when I'm doing the church thing on the side. But when I lived my life, 
at home or among secular friends, it was very much detached from that. I didn't, I, there was no pretense of salvation among friends. Was church ever your social outlet? Never, never, never growing up. I had a handful of friends my age in church and even still friends to this day that I would claim that, yeah, lifelong friendships, but really my social outlet. I, I grew up in a neighborhood with not a lot of kids in it. Um, You're a rich kid. Yeah, that's what Melissa tells me. I I think I'm finally convinced, you know, just based <laughs> on some of the evidence, but I lived in a neighborhood that was, every house was on multiple acres bordering the national forest. No kids anywhere to be seen. It was all, but everyone there was probably in their 50s and 60s and had earned money and were without a job, basically. But my parents made wise financial decisions. They were prudent. They ran businesses that did well. So there was there was a number of things that they, they, they were very successful at. My dad actually uh, recalls in the 90s, he got a word from an evangelist that said that throughout your life, you're going to come into large sums of money and you just need to remember God in that and make sure that you're putting him first. So he recalls that. And so, so yeah, we, I grew up in a neighborhood that was very isolated from other people my age. So really I had two options for social outlet. There was church, which meant involvement in ministry, which I really wasn't that interested in doing. You know, like I said, there was times where I would do a little bit here and there, mostly for, for the sake of fronting, did the the children's ministry for a short time, which it was normal. Once you got out of children's church, everybody, when they graduate <laughs> from children's church, they be, they join the children's church crew as a member of the team. For me, it was like, cool, I don't have to go to church on Sunday night. I can skip a service and roughhouse with my buds in the back. And so it wasn't really like I was, and, and I wasn't like a, I wasn't a problem child. I wasn't the kind of kid that was constantly being brought to my parents. Like you're in big trouble, Buster. Mm -hmm. I really feared that. I didn't want to make a scene because I had secret sin that I was covering up with this pretense of like, oh, David is a good boy. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, he would never, you know, I had that front really, really well established, at least in my own head. Maybe I wasn't successful with everybody, but that's how I felt is that I had a good front going. I don't want to blow this because I don't want to, uh, you know, I'd seen my, my older siblings all kind of, you know, not successfully front. They would just like do their sin in, in broad daylight. And my parents would respond as you would and discipline that and try to curb that sure. in them. And so I saw that and I'm like, I don't want to be curbed. I like what I do. And my sin in that in that age range, that young age range, was very, by adulthood standards, pretty moderate. It was just, I want to stay up late and play on my computer, play games on my computer, and disobey my parents. and You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want the pretense to get out that I was like... A bad kid. A bad kid. And shucking and jiving with my friends at school. There was some obviously inappropriate stuff going on at school as there is with kids. And so I just, I was really good at keeping that like So you were respectful, in other words, of adults. You weren't like blatantly rebellious no, to adults. No, no, never, never blatant. It was always very secret and connived. I could get away with it. Yeah. And so that led into, 
you know, just being able to open more doors that otherwise would have been very visible, very obvious, right? I started looking at pornography when I was a pretty young kid. Just, Do you mind going into that? How is that able to happen? And it's it's tough to say exactly where it started or how. Probably at school there was just inappropriate talk. Young boys are very good at sexual talk or they think they are. <laughs> you know, they're saying all kinds of dirty words and stuff like that and then you just go home and you get on the computer and you google it. So at 9 years old, I mean, excuse my ignorance from this, like at 9 years old there was boys making sexual comments? Yeah, I would say 9, 10, thereabouts. I don't know exactly mm -hmm. what age, but yeah. Oh yeah, very prevalent. Um, you know, it's worse I think in public school. I went to charter schools my whole life. But I think it's worse in public schools. I don't really know for sure. I just know it's I just know it's out there. Mm -hmm. and that an innocent mind, you know, you might be out like for me, I was maybe innocently looking up a, a term, mm -hmm. a sexual term, because I didn't want to look like an idiot in front of my friends and say, what's that? Wow. You know, so mm -hmm. I go home later on and I go, what's such and such, you know, and I won't use any of the terms, but I'm like Googling these terms and just, you know, and, and in those days, the pornography epidemic wasn't nearly as obvious. You know, I think it was still, I think it was happening and I think it was becoming pervasive more and more. And I think there was some, Pastor Mitchell, my pastor, your pastor, he passed away recently. He very much called it out early on. He, he called it out in the 90s. And a lot of people were skeptical, like, yeah, what, the Playboy magazine, my dad hid under the bed, you know, but they didn't realize that the internet being so open and, and pervasive, it's there's no real, as far as on the internet side of things, unless you're putting up protections for yourself or your kids, there's no real way to block that stuff. The The, the pornography sites don't care if a 14-year-old a or an 8-year-old or a 6-year-old so is getting sad. on their website. Yeah, They don't care. That's just more clicks, man. They're into that. They're so, like, great. If we put in, you know, they put in, oh yeah, this is age-restricted content. Click here if you're 18. That's a nine-year-old knows how to say, yeah, I'm 18. But so, you're yeah. not smart enough to know the weight of what you're doing. Did you immediately upon seeing it know in your conscience it was wrong? Yes, 100%. And even the dirty talk at school I knew was wrong in my conscience. But there's a sin nature. And you desire this pure approval especially as a young person, right? Between the ages of the the school ages, 6 to 18. Okay, so we're homeschooling Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> Our kids are home. Yeah. Just breaks my heart when you look at a 9-year-old boy and it's like obviously they're opening up an appetite that's there. They even know how to respond. Did you feel shame like you immediately knew to hide it? Yeah. 100%. This was something that I never wanted anyone to know about. It was totally a secret. I, I never actually in that time of my life got caught in it. You know, it was never exposed in my youth. And maybe that was part of what made me think that I was good at fronting it. Like, oh yeah, you know, I've got this, I've got this, this wall up. I look good. This good the facade is intact. I'm good. And, and there were a handful of times where it was like, 
I need to repent. My parents caught me in one thing or another, but they never caught the big one for me, which was pornography. And and now add to this, sixth through eighth grade, all my friends are dating mm-hmm. within their our friend group. We've we've all gone to school. I went to a very unique school that went from kindergarten to eighth grade. A lot of us were in in school from kindergarten to eighth grade. You know, we had these tight knit relationships, and then now the boys and the girls are dating, and they're oh they broke up, and now they're dating and. You know, I'm wanting to get in this, but I'm like, ah, it's going to ruin my front. My parents are going to find out. Oh, it's going to sure. destroy my front. So like I have all this going on in my head mm-hmm. and it's just building up this like teen angst. It's building to teen angst. You know, I, I'm very sh- ashamed of the pornography habit, but I, in a certain sense, I, I want to continue with it. It's sin. It's, it's yeah. pleasurable for a season. Right. And so, you know, you're dealing with that on that end. And then on the other end, church and conviction and every single service is the same the altar call is just like god saying it's time for you to get right and you're like dude i don't want to sit through that every sunday i hate it i've talked to a couple of uh church kids now pastors and what we've discovered is that what you're doing as a church kid is pulling a pharaoh really you're just hardening your heart to the gospel on a weekly, oh, wow. monthly, annual basis. If you're not responding. If you're not responding sure. to the gospel. You're just turning into this like wicked person in your heart. And that's why you could see somebody who had such a, a good facade just spin out in a second. What happened to that guy? He just spun out. And what you're seeing is the facade. What you don't know is the all the underlying stuff that that guy has been packing in, all the sin he's been just compartmentalizing and then just presenting you with the facade. And so when they spin out like that, it's like, whoa, what happened to that guy? It's like, yeah, he was he was not saved. He was backslidden years ago or yeah. not saved years ago. And he finally just manifested on the external what was happening in his heart the yeah. whole time. And this is something we've talked about before, too, is is to be really careful with church kids one of the things that fascinates me that you've told me is that you never were saved in other words a lot of times people talk about like because they grew up in church and then they went and did their own thing and we talk about them backsliding but the truth is a lot of times there never was a conversion moment they were just kids like going along with the flow or being good kids or how many hundreds of altar calls as a kid i raised my hand and went up and prayed of course, that's what you do when you're a little kid. You pray at every single altar call. You know, you'll see this in your own kids. If you have them and there's an altar call and they're in the service, they always raise their hand, right? And well, so the guy said to raise his he hand. He said, raise your hand. And I, <laughs> you know, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I, I get it. So you're like kind of getting a, a bad view of what an altar call is, what repentance is. And a kid yeah. 100% can get saved and mean it. There's people I know in our church that are church kids that got saved when they were like five years old or seven years old. But for me personally, it just washed down what repentance is. And so, yeah, I was like, by the time I was eighth grade, ready to head into high school, I got in trouble for something. I can't remember what, but this was the closest thing I had to a genuine conversion experience. I was caught for one thing or another and my oh no we don't do that on this podcast we need details i don't know i don't remember <laughs> okay. honestly okay i wish i knew i don't remember what i was in trouble for but my mom and dad really were like 
you need to get your heart right. You're, you're wrong before God. This is unacceptable before God. It was not even like, and that was the worst thing ever for me. It was like, oh my gosh, my front is ruined. And so I was like, okay, uh, I'll, I'll do it. And I went up during a regular church service. I raised my hand. I went up and I prayed at the altar. And that I would say was the closest. I, I mean, I got baptized when I was 11 years old or somewhere in there. And I wrote down three sentences about how I was a bad kid. Now I'm a good kid and very generic blah. But in, but in that, in that eighth grade year, right before high school, I remember genuinely wanting to mean it, Wow. but also kind of being like, but I want to hold on to this stuff too, God. So I want you to fix the in trouble, but I kind of still want to hold on to this. It was like the closest I ever came as a kid, I would say to a true conversion experience. I, I think, I think my sins really were forgiven in that moment, but I was backslidden within two weeks. So maybe in a sense, yeah, I did get saved once, but I didn't surrender in that moment. There was a, there was a salvation moment, but it wasn't true surrender. I, I think I meant it when I prayed it, but I also was reserving something. You know what I mean? So my high school years, I, uh, I went to a brand new school in high school. Like I said, I went to the same school for kindergarten through eighth grade. So all these friends, we've known each other for eight years. We've gone to the same school together for eight years. And then suddenly I'm thrown into, here's a whole new group of people that you don't know any of them. None of my friends went to my high school. They all went to the public high school in town. I went to a charter high school. And so I was like a fish out of water. I'm just like, oh, I hate this. I felt no sense of camaraderie with the people that I went to high school with. There were a couple of guys that I thought were cool, but really I was like, not that interested in, in my peers at my school. And I only did three years of high school. I got really aggressive pursuing an associate's degree, computer networking. I was like, cool, I'm going to get out of high school. I'm going to get a really good job, career job, and I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to be able to do whatever the heck I want. I'm not going to have to follow rules that my parents set, guidelines. I'm going to be able to do what I want to do. So I'm like, all right, I'll get real aggressive towards this degree. What did you want at that moment? If you can go back, girlfriend, what was it that your parents were restricting from yeah, you that you that was wanted to do? I, I wanted a girlfriend. I wanted to have unfettered access to my peers without these restrictions that I saw as being unreasonable. I saw it this way. I'm like, these guys do whatever the heck they want. Their parents don't dominate them. They, I mean, within reason. I mean, they're not. I wasn't hanging out with drug users. They weren't like hardcore alcoholics. I mean, I'm sure some of them drank from time to time and like would sneak a, a little bit of their parents' liquor, but it wasn't like they were party animal freaks, like psychos. They were pretty mellow, like Mormon. So you were just, you were <laughs> kind of, you were kind of pushing against the boundaries that your parents had on you. Like what I think I real my main motivation was, was to feel like I was normal. And okay. not this weird guy who's restricted by his parents overly the Christian and has kid. to go to church every single service. You know what I mean? I felt really abnormal in every group I ever was in. And I'm like, I just want to be like these people, not just like hang out with them from time to time. And then oh, mom's calling. I better run. I just, I wanted to be like them. And so I 
was hanging out with these kids that were old friends and, and they started introducing me to some new people and that started getting me a little bit more connected among my peer group. So, so like I said, I was really aggressive with pursuing a college degree and I realized it was possible in my freshman year. My okay. junior year of high school is really where I started to spin out. From the start of that year to the finish of that school year, I did successfully graduate. I got my degree and I got my diploma, but I almost didn't because by the end of it, I was just like, I'm so done. Mm -hmm. That level of responsibility, I was like burning out bad. I was very busy. And so I was not involved in church at all, which kind of was nice for me. I would miss some services because of night classes. It was kind of like my dream in a certain sense. It was like, hey, I'm getting out of church to go learn the things that I'm interested in. And so in a way, it was like, yes, I finally got out of here. I got my dream thing. And so I was just being really aggressive towards towards that. And So what do you mean by you started spinning out in your junior year? I would say the last semester of my junior year, that's when my grades really started to, to decline. And I, and I started focusing more on my friends and hanging out with them and staying out late. Several things happened in a row. It was very exposing. My front was totally destroyed with my parents. First thing that happened is I went on a co-ed camping trip that my parents absolutely forbid me from going on. And I went anyway. Then it was very soon after that I graduated. They had put real heavy restrictions on me. They're like, we're clamping down on you. I was finally experiencing what my my siblings had been experiencing. Uh, Finally, those restrictions were now on me. And I'm like, dang, this really sucks. No wonder they all just blow them off and say, screw you guys, I'm out of here. The rules are, are brutal. You know, when, you, when your parents are righteous and they want you to be righteous, they start clamping down on, on the unrighteousness real fast. And that's exactly what they were doing. And I don't fault them for that. They were right to do that. But what it did is it just like built up this stubborn, like, well, I'm about to leave. Bye. And so I graduated from high school a month after I turned 17. Then I drank my first beer within a couple of weeks of that. And I was like, that was really fun. That was really fun. That was really cool. I liked that a lot. And then I had gotten a girlfriend right about that time from that friend group I was talking about. And everything was coming out all at once. And my parents were like clamping down. They're like, we're going to, we're going to shut you down, dude. You're done. I'm like, well, I just got a full-time job. I'm out of here. I had just graduated from high school. I got my first full-time job. I'm like, well then fine. See you later. Within a week of that, I was smoking weed every day. Majority of your high school, you were not drinking. And no, because no, you were none busy, of it. all this stuff. Okay, none so you you had your first beer after you graduated yep. high school. <laughs> a lot of firsts happened after high school. No, no. I mean, well, so technically, it would have been my senior year of high school, but I didn't have a senior year. I graduated as a junior. You graduated early, and yeah. I moved out, and that's where I'm like, well, I don't have to go to okay, church. So I don't have to you... front anymore. Yeah, I moved out with my sister, who who also was like, she had had her wild ride, but I was like, whatever. She wants to move out. I want to move out. She was living with my parents. She had come back from in Reno. She came back pregnant, had her baby. And she's like, I want to move out. I'm done. You, you move in. I'm like, yeah, I'm done. Cause we didn't like the rules. We didn't like having to go to church. That was a rule that my parents have. You live in our house. You go to our, you go to, the, you go to church and you go to our church. You don't just pick a church. And so 
it was like, no, you are required to follow these rules if you're going to live in our house. And I was like, fine. All right. Bye. Mm -hmm. Very like a, a stubbornness that that built up first beer. And it was the same, same person. I was hanging out with my brother and my parents like forbid me after the beer incident. And they like, it really damaged that relationship. My brother is 17 years older than me. Okay. So he's 34. He had just gotten out of prison. Um, and I think it was on, on marijuana distribution charges <laughs> and he's smoking pot. And to me, it was like, Daniel, what are you doing? And he goes, Oh, you know, it's all good, bro. You know, I don't get tested very often and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, man. And I kind of wanted to try it because sure. he had, he had, he had given me a beer two weeks prior and got me drunk. We were drunk. And, uh, and he's like, bro, you want to just take a little puff with me, bro? He's like, have you tried it before? I was like, yeah, man, of course. I lied. I'd never done it. But that was like his his thing. Is he, oh, I'm not going to smoke with you for the first time. But I was seeking it. I was trying to. Sure. I had some friends sure. that I knew were kind of involved in the stoner life. Mm -hmm. And so my brother, I was like, yeah, I've tried it. And so he got me high for the first time. I was like, whoa. Okay, drunk was cool. That was fun. High, stoned on marijuana. That was like the greatest thing I'd ever experienced in my whole life. I was like, whoa. One of the things that you told me that was very interesting is you felt like you were lied to. Yeah, yeah. It was like, you know how growing up, it's like drug abuse, resistance, education, dare, right? All this stuff. And there, there there's an anti-drug message when you're growing up, which is fabulous. I'm not, I'm not saying that was, that's a bad thing. <laughs> that should continue. I believe that the drug war is a fantastic thing. And the only reason that drugs are so pervasive right now is not because the drug war was lost, but because we stopped fighting it. I felt that all of that stuff was just propaganda now. I'm like, these guys are lying to us. It's, yeah. It actually is really fun and it enhances anything you do, especially when I started smoking it a lot. So, okay, but I just want to go into that a little bit because I remember you've told me the dare thing, but I think you have told me even, even with church, you kind of got this message yeah. from like probably hearing people who had conversion experiences oh, and yeah. stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's bad. It's broken. It's this and that. Right. And then you have your first time and it's like, well, there, well there's a reason people that, do it. Right. <laughs> okay. So I'm just curious. Obviously everybody's hearing live our parenting discussion. Is there a better way to do that? I think you can be honest with your kids that there's a reason why people do drugs. Don't glorify sin ever. I think that's foolish. But also give them some reality. You know, age appropriate. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to be telling your three-year-old that marijuana is fun. You know, <laughs> For in, a fact, season. in fact, you don't want to tell any kid that because, yeah. because that is true in a certain sense. Yeah. Sin can be fun, but it's actually very, very, very dangerous. And that's what you need to tell them is the danger. There's a reason why people start, but it's dangerous and it will destroy your life. It's destroyed every other person's life that's ever touched it before you. You're not the exception. You need to get that pride out of your head because that's what it was, was for me is pride. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to touch the hard stuff. You know, I just smoke a little weed, get a little drunk. I have a good time. I'm making friends. You thought you were the exception to the rule. How quickly did this turn into something negative? 
negative from the beginning, but I, but perspective is what makes you realize that, you know, and I didn't realize it in the time I was just, I was just having fun. I was working a job and then I was partying every night and going to work and just like, wow, I cannot function. Then it started to become like, okay, well I'll smoke a little bit of weed outside and then I'll come in and I'll interact with my clients and I'll be a lot more, I'll be a lot more bubbly and happy. Right. So you're justifying it. So I'm justifying it, but I'm like, I'm smelling like pot. It's kind of hard to cover that smell. Especially if you just smoked a joint, you didn't chew a piece of gum or anything. You walk inside the building and you're like, dude, this guy reeks of pot. So the job was starting to like kind of realize that I'm a little bit of a, a vagrant. And then there was a few times where it was like I partied until 4 a.m. getting drunk and I'm hung over and I sleep through my alarm and I don't go to work. Starting to shift to the negative very quickly. It wasn't long there. I would say I was good at what I did if I could muster the energy to do it. I rode a little scooter to work because uh, I had my license suspended twice before I was before I was 18. Apparently, if you get more than one ticket when you're under 18, you have your license suspended. Before I turned 17, I got my license suspended in the first year that I had it twice. Oh, gosh. Okay. Wow. So Melissa you're... didn't know this detail about Oh, me. gosh. Anyway. I believe it. So I'm just scooting around on this. It's like a moped. They call them DUI bikes because all the people who have DUIs, you can drive them around legally without a driver's license. So I drive this thing around. That's that's kind of my my persona is I'm just the, the goofy kid on the DUI bike who you know, comes to work half-baked and like a little bit out there. But I'm actually really good at what I do. So they're like having a hard time like wanting to can me. They liked me a lot. Sure. You know, because I was fun. I was a fun-loving guy, you know. It's fun Davey just coming in looking like he's just riding around on his scooter in the middle of the winter. They didn't want to get rid of me. So I had that job for a full, I believe I managed a full year. My sister had decided to move in with a guy that she was dating. And I was like, ah, great. You're really leaving me high and dry like this after six months. Six months into our, our time in our apartment. Please. And I had been working at my job for maybe nine. And I'm like... Oh, you're killing me. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I had a buddy who lived in, who, who was getting ready to rent an apartment in Chino Valley. He was going to rent with this other guy, Brandon. And so I was like, all right, I'll move in with you, bro. Sounds good. And so I, I move out to Chino Valley and just live in this like party cave. I mean, they're bringing cocaine. We're smoking pills there. Like it was quick, man. I'm like, Wow. So the first time I did cocaine was in that apartment and it was like within, I would say nine months prior, I was sitting in the pews at church, raising my hands and fronting. Nine months later, I'm doing a, a bag of Coke. I was desperately seeking something. I, you know, I felt like I'm having fun. I'm making connections with people, but I, I feel like something's missing still. I didn't have a girlfriend all my buddies were sleeping around doing their thing. I think I just need a girl. She needed a girl. And so I was like, all right, how do I do it? I think I got to keep turning my inhibitor off more and more with the drugs. Mm. You know, and I'm not thinking this through logically. Yeah. This isn't rational thoughts happening. It's just like, yeah, here's the next thing to do. Yeah. You know, and so to be cool, I'm like, yeah, I want a bag of cocaine. And so that, that cocaine adventure, all night I'm, I'm up doing coke, just 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m.'s rolling around. I'm like, 
oh no, I got to work and I'm out of Coke. What am I going to do? And I just, I passed out at 6 a.m. They call me at 8.30 and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to have to let you go. Really sad to, sad to do this, but it is what it is. And I said, I totally understand. So I was like, I'll just get my last paycheck. Bring me back to that morning. Did you have a bunch of missed calls when you finally came to? I, I answered pretty quick, but they were like, this is the f- third or fourth time you've done this. Wow. You know what I mean? And they're mm-hmm. like, you're done, dude. We can't, we can't keep doing this. Totally understood. I, I wasn't like, what? You're, you're firing me for real? You know, I, I knew I was, I was pretty good at the technical side, but I was a terrible employee other than that. And so that was about a year after I got that job year after I graduated, I think I just had my 18th birthday. In fact, me and my buddies got together and went down to Phoenix to go party in Phoenix for my 18th birthday with my last paycheck. You mean you didn't save it for rent? No, no, no. (laughs) I was spending the rent on Coke and parties. My roommate, I actually was paying him rent, but he was not paying it. And we were getting evicted like after three months of living there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what did the place look like? Oh, it was a disaster. I feel guilty I to this day. I can only imagine. It was, I feel guilty to this day. They had to They had to rip the carpets out of that place. It was nasty. I mean, we were getting, we were having parties in there every day. And every door in the, in the house was broken, except for my bedroom door. So you're getting evicted. You've lost your job. You're trying to turn off your inhibitions <laughs> to get a girlfriend. Uh-huh. Where do you go from here? I'm like, I got to get out of town. I feel like I need a reset little reset my buddy brandon who i really had linked hearts with in in uh in that house in chino he was he was one of the three roommates it was me this kid named kevin that i grew up with in that friends group from k to eight and then uh this new guy that he kevin introduced me to named brandon and brandon brandon and me just we were kindred spirits man we had the same kind of like it's hard to put it he had an air of spirituality about him like he was playing that he was a christian still well like he he just had a front you know what i mean like i am saved man i love jesus and i love weed it's like all right whatever man that's cool i don't really care for that but i you know i grew up in a christian home i guess i'm into like yeah religion man it's all good and so we really linked hearts we took a we took a road trip to california a couple months prior and that was where we just like really really linked hearts with each other before you left on your road trip did you say let's go brandon I said, let's go, Brandon. And he said, all right, let's go, David. <laughs> he said, yeah, let's go, Brandon. I agree. Yeah. He... <laughs> oh, it... All so, right. So you linked hearts with this guy. So I linked hearts and... with him on this road trip. I mean, he was just, me and him were kindred spirits. And he liked this girl that was in Washington. She had moved from Arizona to Washington State. And he's like, I want to move to Seattle. I think it'd be cool to live in Seattle. And I'm like, dude, that would be so legit. Washington just legalized weed. How cool would that be? And so we're like, let's go. Let's November. go. Let's go, Brandon. Let's just roll. Why not? And so we just we just loaded up our crap. My parents, they stored some of my bigger furniture. I was like, hey, I'm going to move. They're like, well, what are you going to do with your stuff? I'm like, I don't know. I'll probably toss it, leave it in the apartment. I don't care. They're like, well, let us store it for you. It's like, all right, cool. And so I loaded up the clothes on my back, a handful of extra clothes, and we had cats. We had two cats. We loaded our cats up and 
filled his what? teeth. What? No. <laughs> I've never heard this. You were uh, a cat dad. No, it was a cat dad. It was it was Brandon's My influence on me. mind is blown. <laughs> Melissa's getting all the revelations. You are now. such a hater of cats. <laughs> yeah, this that that cat burned me out. He taught me that cats are all soulless jerks. So okay. we moved with our cats in tow, puddles and Oliver, and you know, just a little bit of clothing next to no money. Do you have any plans we of what you're doing when you got there? No, 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 nothing. We were going to camp. We, yeah, we were just going to camp. And uh, it was like, we had a tent. I think I had a couple hundred bucks, maybe 250 bucks. Brandon had a little bit of cash. I'm not sure. But yeah, we just hightailed it out of Prescott. Just December 28th. We stayed for Christmas, had Christmas with our families. Just got in the car and went on a little adventure. I've got a picture. Me holding my cat in a hoodie and a leather jacket over top of it. You have a picture of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a Boston ball cap right. and uh, ripped jeans. And we arrived and it was like, okay, great. Now what? We set up our tent, I should say, under a bridge because it was raining. And I was like, this tent is not going to deal with a torrential downpour for nine hours while we sleep so we set it up underneath a bridge so that we could deal with that and we realized oh my gosh we are way under prepared for this in terms of the weather it is brutal cold in washington state in the winter and so i'm like oh boy that was was how long how long did it take you to get there we got there for the new year in a tent tent. and uh and so we're like this is and we had bought foods that would that would last forever, but they were, but they ran out immediately. <laughs> like we had tons of ramen. We ran out of weed on, on like day four and it was like devastating. We're scraping our pipes for resin. It was just like, oh man, we got to find someone with some weed, bro. I don't know what we got to do to get us some cash, but we're like, dude, the food situation, this is not going to, we were trying to cook on these little like camping stoves and stuff. It was like, this is insane. What are we doing? And Brandon's like, dude, we could just walk into the store, eat something off the shelf, put the wrapper in a trash can and walk out. No one's going to say anything. I'm like, that's a really good point. And they, and you have like an entire store full of amazing food. And we're trying to like cook this quinoa, you know, <laughs> and it tastes horrible and there's no salt. So I was like, what are Did we doing? Did you really have quinoa? We had quinoa. And ramen. We had tons of ramen. That, but the ramen didn't last very long. When you're getting stoned and just eating, it's gone in days. So by like day five, we're out of food. We're trying to eat the quinoa. It's so gross. And Brandon has the bright idea. Let's just go in and steal what we want. We don't have to take it out of the store. The other thing I realized was like, hey, they have cough syrup in there. You can get high on that. So I'm like, well, we're out of weed. We're out of food. I don't know anybody here. I'm not from here, you know? So I'm like, whatever, I'll just go into the store and just get what I want, take it, eat it and leave. Wash my hands of the situation and then move on to the next store and do the same thing the next day and save our money for the important things like weed and gas. Cause we had a little bit of cash, but I mean, it wasn't like we had a ton of money. And so I'm like, great, let's do it. And I think it was about a month we did that. 
Okay, first of all, sleeping in a car where you can't put the seats back is brutally uncomfortable, especially in the winter. You couldn't put the seats back? No. And the, and the cats would poop on us in the middle of the night. It was awful. It was so horrible. Wait, wait, wait. So for food, you're doing that. You ditched the tent because it's winter. Well, we had the tent still, but it was like, we're not doing that again. You're not setting it up because it's so cold. It's so cold. Okay, so cars are cold in winter. Yeah, but you can double sleeping bag and then you can turn the heater on once in a while. Okay, so that's that's what you would do. Yeah. And then what were you doing during the day? Just getting high? Uh, Yeah, just wandering through whatever store we happen to be at. We would literally, so we'd pull up in a parking spot in the back of a parking lot and we'd ditch all of our trash and then we'd leave and go to the next store and live there for two, three days, eat food off their shelves for two, three days. And then the problem was we developed a habit, a really bad kleptomania habit. But uh, Brandon had some friends that had moved to Washington maybe uh, a year prior and he's like, dude, I'm going to hit them up. Maybe they'll text me back. We'd been living in the car for a month. It was getting kind of old. And uh, he's like, maybe they'll text me back. We'll, we'll see what we can do to like get settled. Be nice to have a place to live. We could get a job, start earning money. And so he hit him up. He's like, hey, is there any way we could like come chill with you guys for a couple weeks? Maybe a, couple, maybe a month or two. And they're like, yeah, man, that'd be cool. So it was a three-bedroom apartment. There was five of us, a dog and two cats. It was chaos. But Brandon has Xbox, so they were chill with that. They're like, cool, you got the Xbox. And then I would overdraft my bank account every week for like $200 before I'd get paid. So I got a job at Little Caesars, and I would get paid, and it would cover the overdraft. So every every couple of weeks, I was overdrafting my account to to just buy a bunch of weed for everybody in the house and beer. And then my other contribution is that me and Brandon would get groceries. By stealing, because you had we gotten really good so at stealing. good at stealing. And so we would literally go to the store. And just load up two carts completely full with groceries and just steal them. And no one ever caught us doing that. So You would just walk out the door with the groceries? Walk out the door. Cart load. With no bags? No bags. Yeah, the was, greeter didn't stop no, it was, you? No, it was like no one, no one even noticed. Was it a really busy store? I think it was just a really busy Walmart. Where there's just so there's just so many so people. much going on that so much going everyone's on. minding their own business just yeah. walking out and so I was doing that and the, and so that habit I mean I would do that every time I wanted food I never paid for food and while I was at work on my lunch break I would just walk over to the Albertsons across the way I would steal the same thing every time I'd steal a Dub Edition Monster and a bag of Cheetos for my lunch break and I would walk back to the so I would steal an energy drink and a bag of Cheetos and I would go back to work. And uh, I did that like every day. And one time I almost got caught. The guy uh, came into the came into the Little Caesars, like one of the loss prevention guys from Albertsons. I didn't even know Albertsons had loss prevention, but apparently. They do. They do. And he walked in and he goes, my manager was running the counter. I was in the back on my lunch break and I had my apron off. Or I, I had already, I had already put my apron back on, but I took my jacket off and my hat off. The manager goes, "Hey, Dave, this guy wants to talk to you." And I see him. He's got a he's got an Albertsons badge. I'm like, "Oh no, it's gonna happen now at work and everything. This is not good." So I come out and go, "Yeah, yeah, can I help you?" My boss goes, "Yeah." He says he's looking for a guy who came in here not too long ago, uh, leather jacket, ball cap. Have you seen him? I go, 
no. He goes, well, you've been running the counter. I'm like, I haven't seen him. Sorry. The guy looks at me, like, gives me, like, a, a side eye and goes, okay. All right, thanks for your time. And he leaves. So I, it was really bad for so me. I, I took the leather jacket and ball cap off in the bathroom, hung it up, and put my apron on oh my after my break. And I was getting ready to get back to work, and that's when he came in. So he completely didn't recognize me without the ball cap and jacket on. They didn't know I was a Little Caesars employee. They assumed I went in there to buy a pizza and left. I am not going back in that Albertsons and stealing yeah, again. I'm going to get sure. busted for sure. Yeah. I, I was really, really, really bad for a long time with stealing. Was it everything you hoped and dreamed? You're, you're no, working a little no, Caesars. No, 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 no. It was awful. I hated it from, from day one. I'm like, I hate living in a car. Then I hated living with all these people. It was like way too much. I'm like, this sucks. My dream was to get a girlfriend, that whole thing. And I'm like, this is not going to happen with five other dudes in the house. This is a man cave. It's horrible. And then started long. I picked up longboarding while I was there. So I, I got a longboard and I would just, I would just go out for hours and hours and hours and just get high and just longboard to music in my ears, depressing music. And I would get stoned. And occasionally I would actually still go and get bottles of Robitussin. They call it robo-tripping. And you just drink an entire bottle of cough syrup and you get a really gross, horrible feeling. But it's also you're high and out of your head a little bit. You're not doing it for enjoyment. You're doing it for the high and it sucks. I would so much rather get stoned, but I'm broke. And I've overdrafted my account already once. So that just kept happening. Every penny I earned either went to paying the small portion of rent or buying drugs. How about cigarettes? Was cigarettes a thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was. A, I smoked a pack a day. Yeah. Very expensive. It's like seven, eight bucks. I hated my life. It was horrible. I just wanted to be out of there so bad. And the girlfriend that I had had for a very short time, but she started reaching out to me again. I miss you and I want you back and... And just like really tugging on my heart again. And I was in Washington and I'm like, I had no car. The place I lived was hard to say it was mine. I was a guest there the whole time. They were getting kind of sick of us being there. We were kind of overstating our welcome. I could feel it. I was just like starting to really hate this town. And just like, I want to be out of here. I want to be back home. Prescott is seeming really appealing right about now. So I broke down and just, just wept real tears. I was very emotionally dead having my birthday up there, 19 years old and just like missing my life. I'm like, I gotta go. I'm working at a job that's has nothing to do with this, this fabulous education that I got. I hate the job. I feel like I'm overstaying my welcome with these people and they're starting to get like they're starting to manifest their craziness because drug addicts are kind of crazy. I don't know if you know that, but they're kind of crazy. And these people were manifesting their craziness more and more. And it was starting to really turn me off to being around them all the time and constantly broke and stealing to survive. I guess I didn't really have to steal to survive. I probably could have lived on a budget if I was actually not just buying drugs with every penny. I'm like, I really have to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And so I called my mom and I'm like, mom, I got to get out of here. She's like, I'll get you a plane ticket home one way. I was like, fabulous. I think they wanted me to come home to get sure. saved. They thought that might be what this was. 
but I wasn't ready to get saved. I just wanted out of there. I want to get out of the misery. I'll get back to my normal life and I'll just be okay. And so I moved back to Prescott. My parents owned some apartment complexes, so they rented me a place. I quickly got a job installing internet. That girl that had kind of drawn me back here, she quickly faded out. I, I realized she was just a loony. Anything that's there, it's deadened by by being around you. You're a very unlikable person. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing this job, and I'm like, I got to get a little bit better opportunity. I need to make some money. I need to make some real money. Those guys were paying me very little, just like a flat fee every time I did an install. And so I applied for a job at a local car dealership in their IT department, and I got the job. And it was the best paying job I've ever had. And suddenly, now I went from like destitute kind of loser in Washington to suddenly now I'm like, now I have some cash. I started to realize as I was there, my direct superior is a drug user. He's getting, he's getting lit on pills all the time. And so I started to kind of open up to him a little bit about it. Like, hey, you know, what's up with this? And, and he would share his pills with me. And I would share my weed with him. So we'd go back and forth. We'd get stoned. We'd get high on pills. And so all the time, I am getting high constantly. Me and Brandon, when we left for Washington, we were like, let's get stoned every day. That's our New Year's resolution. We're going to get stoned every day. Back in Prescott. But my resolution still stood, man. I was like, I'm keeping this thing. And if I couldn't get stoned, I was like, I'll get high on something every day. It was from April to, I think, October, about six months, hanging out with the same group of friends that I'd had. We all kind of came together, and we would, like, wax eloquent about philosophy, like maybe the universe is just a giant egg, and when you emerge from the egg, you become a god. You know, that kind of (laughs) garbage. That's the kind of stuff that we would go on about. We'd get drunk and high and do that. And so this guy, Josh... I went to high school with him, actually, freshman year. We weren't close in high school, but afterwards we got close. He'd gotten out of prison and he started hanging out with us and he introduced me to methamphetamine and I immediately became addicted to it from the moment I tried it. I'd gotten a car because I worked at a dealership. He's in my car. He's in the backseat. He's like, bro, if the answer is no, I totally understand. No problem. You don't have to. I'll never ask you again. But. I just wanted to offer this to you and you can say yes or no. And then whatever you say that rides and I'll be fine with that. Do you want to try some meth? And I was like, yes, of course. And so from that day, that was so in at October. this point, you, your goal was to get high every day. You didn't care what it was on. And so yeah. there was no logic. There was no, I'm not doing the hard drug. All of, of that. that's gone. None of that. So you just had never been offered meth. Well, at this point, I've already done cocaine. I've been popping pills at work. I'm living a lifestyle that doesn't have anything to do with that original vow that I made a vow, you know, in the, in my mind that I won't touch the hard stuff. That was long gone. I'm just doing this because it's fun because my friends are doing it and it feels great. You know, you just, you get high and you, you party. He introduces me to this girl who is his meth dealer. And so me and her start hanging out all the time. She's getting me high. I'm hanging out with her. I'm fulfilling some kind of emotional need with her. She had a lot of issues and, you know, just me being a, like a nice, decent person. 
she had never experienced nice, decent people in her life, right? Because she's raised in drugs. Her mm-hmm. parents are total, total meth freaks, spun out every day, wow. loony. Her mom thinks the radio is talking to her kind of people. Wow. And so she'd never really experienced like a nice person who's just nice to her, just out of kindness. Not trying to manipulate her, use her. Yeah. I mean, her. I was, <laughs> I wasn't showing that. It wasn't like, Hey girl, what's up? You know, there was none of that. There was no shucking and jiving. I didn't have that. I didn't, that wasn't me. I was like, Hello. Very nice to see you. You look lovely this evening. <laughs> I brought you a flower. So there was. <laughs> you were raised as to be a decent, kind, like gentleman. Yeah, I mean, I, it's kind of funny when that's your upbringing. You don't really have a file for how to like be a playa. I mean, how do you be a playa? You know, <laughs> a playa. How do you, the way you're saying how it. do you it's be so a playa? Hockey. You know, I'm like a dork who. Five minutes ago was sitting in the church pews. Yeah. Literally. Like you can run back the clock two years, not even. There's David in the church pews. Yeah. So I don't understand player yeah, culture. And, and explain this to me because I remember you sharing this with me before. When it came to women, the reason you proposed to your first girlfriend is because well, you... Well, I thought you get married before you sleep together. That was... <laughs> That was like what you do. Well, you know. Obviously <laughs> yeah, obviously I know you could. Your friends were hooking up. I didn't know how to broach the subject with just a chick. Like, what do you say? You want to sleep together now? <laughs> like, you're hanging out. Where's Where is the point at which you broach the topic? There To me, it was like, I don't know how to do that. That's very intimidating. I have no idea how to do that. So I was just like, you, I'll just win, will I'll you win marry them me? with kindness okay. and be a gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually they'll fall in love and want to sleep with me. Okay. That was my, that was my your, your thinking. Strategy. That was my logic. All right. So you're doing this with the math dealer. Yeah. And, and she, she, it's, it's hard to say. She had a lot of emotional problems, like I said. And so I think she was emotionally vulnerable and just yeah, course, somebody yeah. treating her with a degree of kindness was like a, such a breath of fresh air. I sure. think she was probably sexually abused. I don't know. I, I, I'm just pontificating here because I know her mom was only like 17 years older than her. Teen mom kind of stuff. It was very strange. And so very damaged person. And somebody, I'm sure she slept with hundreds of guys. And for the first time in her life, somebody's actually treating her with some dignity and respect and kindness. And I sort of manipulated her into sleeping with me. And so I'm getting high with her. She slept with me and that now I'm able to be the heartless player. That's what happened. Wow. And I think that's what does it in a man's heart is you breach that part of your life. And that unlocks this douchey, arrogant player attitude because then i was able to get the next girl no problem and i was able to just dump her like bye you know i got what i wanted and now i was like i don't like you i wanted you i was using you man sin so is such a mess oh it's so even even talking about it now i feel like my heart hurts because of what i did in that situation yeah, it's, be, put her through, it's sure. very wrong and, and i did the same thing to my next girlfriend mm-hmm. i used her I had, I had now had the arrogant player thing and women for whatever reason, especially unsaved women who have had trouble in their lives are very attracted to that for some reason. 
And all this time I'm getting deeper and deeper into the, into the meth addiction to where I can't stop myself. I'm completely out of control. I'm doing it every day throughout this whole thing. You, you make different connections with drug dealers and stuff, but I'm getting in high and high in this guy's apartment. It's actually his girlfriend's apartment. He doesn't live there, but, and she lets us just hang out and get lit all night. And I had a lot of money. I was making good money in, in my job. And so, and I was kind of maintaining, you know what I mean? Cause with meth, you can do it all night, go to work. And as long as you still have a little bit of meth, you can work through the whole day and be a highly productive worker. You're, you're just, you're so on another level of energy and your brain is functioning at a million Miles ticks per second. Time. Like you're just going, I would just go all night and then go all day the next day. And then I would go all night that night. And then I would wow. go all day and four days in, I'm like, okay, time for me. And then I would smoke a little bit of heroin. I never shot anything up. Thank God. I never opened that door. Cause I know that's a hard door to close, but I never shot anything up. So I'd smoke a little bit of heroin Heroin for me was just like my way to bring myself back a little bit. I'm getting a little too weird. I'm starting to see things and my thoughts aren't working real well. So I got to cut it off a little bit. So I'm sitting in this, in this guy's house. He had left to go. There's a bunch of people there. They were all there to buy drugs, buy various things, heroin and meth. Mostly that's what the guy sold. But he had gone to his dealer to go buy more. And uh, he left in this girl's car and she had a headlight out. So they got pulled over on the road. They're giving stories to the cops and lying. He had a warrant. So the girlfriend is like, oh, I don't have my purse or my ID. I'm, my name is Georgia Sh- Smith. And she's making up a name. And it was a total pseudonym. And so they're like, well, we're going to need to see some ID. Because you're not coming up in any of our databases. So you're not free to go until you present us with some ID. Otherwise, we're going to take it down to the station. She's like, well, I don't have it. It's in my house. All right, let's go. So what happened is I hear boo, 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 knock on the door. I'm like, who the heck? I'm going, I don't know what time it is. It can't be a reasonable hour for someone to be knocking on the door. So I go do the little tweaker peek through the blinds. It's and there's like seven cops and they saw me and now they're like pissed boom, 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 banging on this door i'm going oh i run back into the room where all the paraphernalia was sitting out and people were getting high and i'm like hide everything there's cops and they're like what i'm like yeah there's cops at the door right now they're banging on the-. no one else is hearing the banging wow. i'm the only one responsible enough to like Dum, 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 dum. hear that and go that's not nothing <laughs> you know oh my people gosh. start jumping out windows i mean it was nuts and scatter we gotta get out of here we're screwed because there's so much drug paraphernalia i mean there's ton. there's no drugs they went to go buy more but there's tons of drug paraphernalia and we're on meth our brains aren't working properly sure they're like on another plane of existence and everyone in there was high on meth some people are running, scattering. What are you doing? What did you do? I'm like, I got to go open the door. Somebody's got to deal with this. We can't just let them bang on the door. Yeah. They're going to kick the door in eventually, yeah. and we're all going to get screwed anyway. So if we can at least front like there's nothing going on, then maybe they'll let us go. That seems like the obvious logical thing to do. Like, oh, nothing going on here. Nothing to see here, officer. But 
clearly it was it's i mean it sure i'm sure it reeked of chemicals and weed and heroin stench that's those smells are very distinct and if you're a police officer you're trained to identify them so there's no way they weren't coming in and arresting us and i go back up and i'm like hello officer and they immediately there was not even like hello sir good night no they they like get out come out they barge in they go in i'm like oh great so they pull me out, cuff me. I'm freezing cold. It's November. It's the middle of the night. I'm freezing. I'm in like shorts and a and a t-shirt. I'm freezing cold and they've got me cuffed out on the balcony and I say, "Hey, I have a leather jacket in there. It's like sitting on a chair. Is there any way you could bring that out? I'm freezing cold." They go, "You mean this leather jacket with your wallet and your ID? Oh, it must be this one." And there's meth pipes and tin foil and bags of weed. And like, I'm just like, oh, you idiots. They hid everything. When I said hide the stuff, they put it all in my jacket that was hanging on the chair that I was sitting at. They hid every single piece of paraphernalia in my jacket pocket with my wallet. Were they trying to set you up? I have no idea. But that's what it felt like in that moment. I'm like, either you guys are the biggest idiots or you're trying to frame me for everything and make me take the fall. Why did I answer the door? Anybody could have answered the door. I could have just been an innocent bystander sleeping in the bed. I could have gone in one of the bedrooms and pretended to be asleep. So I felt like they were trying to trying to burn me. So they pulled me down in the car. Obviously, they're going to arrest me. I have like nine felonies in my jacket. And so... He goes, listen, everybody is trying to point the finger at you. They're, they're all saying they had no idea that you were high on various drugs. They're saying that they just smoked weed. And they're saying that you're the only one that, that used any of this stuff. And he goes, right now you have nine felonies. I'm like, oh, great. I go, listen, man, I'm not, I don't want to bus roll anybody and say anything on the record. He goes, all right. He turns off his camera. He goes, off the record. Off the record. Every single one of them is high on meth, I guarantee it. Probably more. And so that was enough for them to go. And I was like, could you leave the heater on, man, since I helped you out? And he's like, yeah. And added to that, they put some of the other charges on other people. So I didn't get hit with all nine felonies. And and they only charged me with that. And then they charged me with the the internal possession of methamphetamine. Because they did a blood test later and I had meth in my system. So I got locked up that night for the first time. And I was like, oh my gosh, what did I do? I got two felonies now. This is garbage. I had gotten busted for stealing. And that was a misdemeanor. I had gotten busted for minor and drinking under the age of 21. That was a misdemeanor. So I had a couple of things on my record. But felonies, that's prison time. You know, oftentimes. It's not guaranteed, but very often that means prison. And so now I'm like, great. So I go to I go to jail and I immediately start calling people. I called my boss at work and I was like, in the jail system, you have to take the collect call. It's a, the whole thing. But I called him. It let him know that I was in jail the next day because this was on a Sunday night, I believe. Monday morning, I'm in jail. So I called him to let him know like, hey, I'm in jail. Um, and this is the week of Thanksgiving. I'm in jail. Uh, I'm not coming into work. 
And so he's going to bat for me because he, he really liked me. He's the guy you're getting the pills yeah, from. Yeah, and he was, and he was a drug addict too. So he's yeah. just like, you're an idiot. You got caught. And so I was not losing my job, which I was like, wow. Because I mean, I'd lost a job before for this kind of thing. And then I called my brother and I was like, bro, if there's any way you can bail me out. I mean, I don't want to be in here for Thanksgiving. That would really suck. He's like, I'll bail you out if you come to Thanksgiving with me in Phoenix with my with my wife's family. I was like, all right, man. I guess so. Yeah, I'll do it. So he, he made it happen. Borrowed some money from so-and-so slime ball. And, uh, oh my and, uh, and got me out before Thanksgiving. He got me out the day before Thanksgiving. He's like, all right, let's go pay back pops. I'm like, dude, I didn't know I was going to have to pay someone back. I don't have any money. If I had money, I would have bailed myself out. I would have, I would have told you how to get in my accounts. I don't have anything. I'm broke, dude. I live paycheck to paycheck, man. I spend every dime I have every week, every two weeks, whatever it is. Pops is an inmate for like an ex con, ex con from hell's angels. He was a hell's angel. Like this guy is not no joke. He's killed people. He's committed the act of murder over less. And I'm like, I don't have money, bro. Like, what are you doing, dude? He's like, well, you better get it. You got five days. Pops wants his money. I'm like, dude, I cannot believe you've done this to me. So I'm like, all right, I guess I'm. How gonna... much was it? Five hundred bucks. So I'm like, all right, guess I'll get a credit card and cash advance it. I don't know what to do. I, that's all I can do. And so I applied for every. Well, I, I think I only applied for one credit card. I had a pretty decent credit score i was i was making a lot of money so i had i had very little debt i was you know doing i was being good about making car payments and paying back loans that i would get rarely so i wasn't like dying in credit card debt or anything so i was like all right i'll just get a little cash advance on this thing and go pay back pops and so i go pay him back and he tosses a two grams of meth on my lap says here that's for you. And I was like, uh, I really probably shouldn't take this. I just got out of jail for this stuff. And I haven't gone to court yet, but I'm probably going to have to take drug tests fairly regularly. And he's like, all right, here, Daniel, sell that. And Daniel's like, okay. And as we're driving away, Daniel goes, dude, Pops is not the kind of guy that you say no to from her, for a gift. I'm like, bro, I don't, I, he's like, do you want to sell it? I don't have the connections to sell this. He's like, I don't know anybody who smokes meth. I'm like, all right, I'll deal with it. I'll sell it. In my head, I'm like, dude, I'll, I'll get high on meth again. I love this stuff. You know, two grams was a lot of meth to me. Dude, I will take it. And so I took it, got high immediately. I'm, I'm on a razor's edge. I'm like, I don't want to get in trouble for this stuff anymore, but I love it. So I was like, all right, I'll just do this and then I won't do anymore. That was a joke. So I got put on probation. I got a year and a half probation and some counseling courses. I went to every counseling course completely blitzed out of my mind on drugs. And I failed every drug test for 10 weeks in a row, two months. I couldn't stop doing math. I was getting high on it every single day. What What were you looking at? Well, there's a couple of steps. I mean, I was a fairly low risk offender by the court standards. There was no violent charges or aggravated charges. 
And I was very honest with my probation officer. Every time I ever got high and she asked me to my face, I couldn't lie. I just, in that moment, I was just like, yeah, I did. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't know. I, 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 I can't stop. One of the threads throughout this whole story is how Christian upbringing still affected you. Because, like, <laughs> this yeah. is what I mean. Like, you, you're you an honest drug addict. That That is an oxymoron. Like, that doesn't happen. I. That's why she let me have 10 failed UAs. That wouldn't happen twice with most POs. When I could get away with it, I would lie. Of course. I could lie so easily if I wasn't being directly confronted. But a direct confrontation was like, I can't. So after 10 UAs, my, my, my probation officer says, you're done. She just wanted me to get it right and just stop. She, I, she really thought that I had it in me to change. Like, I, I was different. And I think what it is is that I had so much morality just in there because of my upbringing. You can harden your heart for years, but a lot of it penetrates. Yeah. God's word doesn't go forth void. And so there was a lot of seeds of morality in my heart Sure, that I think she just recognized that. And just like, if you look you at know. a high school picture of David, he looks like a, a college Republican. Like <laughs> I was, I was the president of the college Republicans at Yavapai right. College. Okay. So what I mean, cause I, you know, just this clean cut kid with a suit and a tie and I used to wear a suit to school. Very rig. You didn't look like a meth addict. Right. And very quickly you spiraled. And yeah, we'll post some pictures and stuff. And it definitely did get bad. And you got unrecognizable in some of your pictures. But I'm putting myself in the position of a pro- probation officer who's looking at this kid. And you're just like, how did you get caught up in this? Like, yeah, can I, you make I think this that's right? It. I think that's yeah. exactly what happened with her. So now, so now fast forward to April, I'm still getting high. She's telling me I'm going to PTR you, which is a petition to revoke. That means they're going to take away my probation, send me back to the court and resentence me, which possibly means prison time. So I'm like, oh, great. I'm like, okay, I got to stop with the meth. It's going to get me put in prison. And I, I do not want to go to prison. Like that is so much further than I ever want to go. So I'm like, all right, well, how can I get high without getting caught? Weed's going to get me caught. That's going to show up. Meth is going to get me caught. That's going to show up. Cough syrup for crying out loud. Alcohol, everything that I could think of as like a a substitute so that I could stop getting high on meth. Cause I, I was so desperate. I was addicted. Hardcore. I was so desperate. I was like, I just need something just to get through the day. Was it one of those s- things where you didn't know when she was going to test you? Yeah, about your it was color. Totally random. It's okay. totally random. But every time I would get high for like, I would do like a bender for four or five days. Then I would get drug tested, and then I would stop for a day or two because I'm like, ah, oh, I got a drug test. Ah, oh, dang it, I got, I, I'm going to be in big trouble for this. So I'd stop for a day or two, and then I'd start doing it for three days, and then I'd get drug tested again, and I'd stop for a day or two. So it was like it was this repeating cycle that was happening. That's why it was ten in a row because I was getting high. And then getting busted on the drug test, stopping for a couple of days to like stop getting high on meth. But I was such a drug addict, so addicted to it that two, two days would go by and I'd be like, I have to get something. I like my body 
was physically craving it. And granted, there was heroin and everything else mixed in there too. And I'm just like, I need it. So after that, that whole stint, she's like, I'm going to give you another chance, but you're going to do 10 days in jail. And I'm like, great. And they're going to fire me from my job for this. I'm like, can we do it on the weekends and do work release? And she said, I'll think about it and I'll get back to you. So I was like, all right, now I got to figure out what to tell my boss. I'm like, boss, eh, I could do 10 days in jail. If that happens, what's going to be? He's like, dude, you're not going to be able to stick around if that happens. I am not going to be able to cover for you again. I'm like, well, I, I asked her if I could do work release. She said she might. So maybe weekends. He's like, if you do that, I'll keep my mouth shut. And you just try to get this right. Try to figure it out. Do something else, man. I'm like, all right, I guess I'll just drink and try and stay super low key. I can't smoke weed. I got to figure out what kind of things are out of your system very quickly, you know, and that's when I discovered that inhalants, inhalants such How as... How did you discover that? Did someone tip you off Well, that? I, yeah. interestingly enough, there's this massive mountain of, like a huge case of 20 packs of computer cleaner sitting in a stack behind me. And one of my coworkers, who was also a druggie, he was drunk at the time because he was always drunk. He came in and he laughed. He's like, ha ha, you getting high on dust off back there? I'm like, I like, ha 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 ha, very funny. Then I thought about it. I'm like, can you get high on this stuff? Really? So I Googled it. I'm like, yeah, you can. You can. He wasn't kidding. He was kidding, not kidding. And I'm like, I have 400 of these right here. I don't even have to buy it. No one's going to notice one or two of these missing. But the thing is, the high lasts a very, very short amount of time. But it's a devastatingly intense high. Like, you literally will black out. And so, I just started going through this tower. So, day one, I started. I'm like, wow, this is really effective. I just took a couple of them home. I did it all night long. It was, I was like killing so many brain cells, I'm sure. I was driving home from work and I blacked out in the car, but I realized it was happening. I'm like, uh Oh, uh Oh, I'm blacking out. And I pulled over to the side of the road. And even before that, so the way I discovered that the blackouts could happen at work, I did some, it was late in the day. I'd been doing it all day and I did, I got a call for somebody needed some tech support. They needed me at their computer. So I go, okay, I'll be there in five minutes. I put the phone down. I do a, a puff. I grab a cigarette because I would always smoke every time I was going from point A to point B. I lived. I worked on a car dealership that was five dealerships and you could, it, walking from one dealership to the next, you could always smoke a cigarette. I grabbed a cigarette off the table and then I woke up in a pool of my own blood. Like, what happened? What happened was I blacked out, face planted into the desk, fell onto the floor and just bled from my from my head that had hit the desk at like full speed cuz you just you just collapse there's nothing you can do when it's coming if you don't if you don't get yourself in a safe spot you're going to hit the floor you're going to you're going to whatever is happening in that moment is just going to happen and you're going to lose all bodily control you're going to go completely dark and then eventually a couple minutes go by you come to the gears start to turn real slow in your brain you're not like a hundred percent when you first come to. So I'm on the floor. My eyes are closed. I feel like it's so hot in here. I'm just pouring sweat. And 
I touch my head and I look at it and it's so my hand is soaked in blood. And I'm like, what? And I turn around and I look behind me and there's a big pool of blood on the floor. I'm like, oh my gosh, what happened? And so that was my first experience with blocking out on this stuff. And then on the way home, you were hopping in again. Yeah. I They even sent me to urgent care to like get my brain scan checked out. And the, the urgent care doctor was like giving me like the side. I'm like, oh, what happened really? You know, he could tell this wasn't some kind of brain condition. This was, this was, you, you're doing something, bro. And so I was like, oh, I don't know, man. I don't know what happened. You know, playing dumb. So next day, I'd been doing it all night long that night. Next day I go to work. It's a Friday morning. I'm doing it on the way to work. And, and I black out, but not fully behind the wheel. Just what I lost was motor function. I didn't lose my sight. I didn't go completely dark. I didn't lose consciousness, but I lost motor function. It just went numb, like, like dead arms. And my car drifted. I, I took my foot went off the gas. It wasn't, I wasn't accelerating cause I had, I just went limp. My foot went off the gas and I drifted through all the lanes of traffic in the oncoming traffic into the breakdown it came to a stop. And I'm just like, so your brain isn't really processing. You're seeing you're observing, but there's no thinking happening when you're in that state. And so my brain, when it starts clicking, starts actually thinking thoughts. First thing I think is I start laughing because I'm like, look at all these cars going the wrong way on the road. Oh my God. But then I'm like, wait a minute. I'm the car going the wrong way on the road. Oh boy, this is not good. Ooh, I get I wait for it to clear up. I get out of the breakdown, go through the traffic and get back into the right lane of traffic. And I'm like, okay, go to work. And I went to work that day and all day long, again, just getting high on this stuff all day long. They were suspicious at, at work because the urgent care people were like, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He's up to something. They'd reported that to my, not my direct boss, but the, the head honcho, the GM of the dealership. And he was like, kind of like, eh, giving me the side eye. He really liked me. So that was why they kept me around. They really liked me. They liked my work. They thought I was a good worker, but this drug thing was not going to work. I'm doing it all day. That day I leave. So like I told you, I was in that uh, sailboat racing competition with my boss in Phoenix. And I was going to go to my apartment and collect a few things. And actually I was going to stop. And that day I had a drug test for probation. All this is going on in the background of my probation officers telling me she's going to PTR me. I got to do 10 days. All that's happening in the background of this whole thing. It's two days. And, but this dust off is supposedly not supposed to show up on a drug test. It won't show yeah. up on a drug test. Okay. It definitely okay. doesn't. And so I'm going to stop and do my drug test. I'm huffing on the way. It's not going to show up. And, and I feel myself starting to black out. I'm like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. There's no time for me to get over. It's too late. I black out and I come to, there's a car directly in front of me when I come to, but like I told you, your brain isn't processing everything exactly. Mm -hmm. You're just, the gears in your brain are like grinding to Start get back and again. functioning. Pro yeah. yeah. And so that's the best way I can describe it is like the gears are turning, but yeah. Not everything is, is clicking. Yeah. You're slowly coming You're back into slowly, reality. It's, it's very, yeah. It's like one thing after another. It's like, uh-oh. Okay. 
all right, now I get it. Now I'm back. There's a car directly in front of me. I feel pain in my chest. Like head on or the back of a car? Okay, so the front of a car directly in front of me. Okay. So like I'm in the oncoming lane of traffic. Here's the yellow. The yellow line is directly to my right side. I'm in the first lane in the opposite lane of travel from the direction I was going. And I realize I'm in the wrong lane. That was the first thing that dawned on me. And I say, got to get over, get back into my lane of travel. Okay. So I immediately throw the car into drive. There was enough space between me and the car to where I could just turn and go into the next lane and go. And so I did that. I throw the car in drive and I just pull out of there and go. I'm like, did she stop? So the next thought, clink, right? The thoughts are clicking now. The next thought is, did she stop or did we hit? And that's when I realized there's pain where the seatbelt is in my chest, which means there's been an impact, right? I look though, there's the airbags aren't deployed. You would have thought the airbags would deploy if you got in a head on collision, right? So I'm going, it must not have happened. I think I'm okay. So I drive to my drug test. I park my car next to the drug testing place, which there happens to be a little Creek that runs right by that drug testing place. So I park the car, I go inside the drug testing place and I do my first clean drug test since I've been on probation. So I walk back out and that's when the, that's the first time I noticed the state of my car. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this thing is trashed. That is when you realized that you had gotten in an accident. That's, that's when it dawned on me. I'm like, I hit her. I oh hit her head on and I took off and I'm like, what do I do? I can't go back there. What will I say? If I go back there, they're going to want to know what the heck was that all about, dude? So now I'm gone. I'm like, I, I, I didn't realize I had hit her. I wow. thought I was just, it was the same as this morning mm-hmm. where I had come to a stop in the breakdown lane. No, this was, this was, I hit full on collision. I, I it couldn't have been very fast because obviously you, my airbags would have deployed if it was a serious collision. So I'm thinking it must not have been too bad. Maybe I'll be okay. So I drive home and when I get to my apartment, my apartment is situated in such a way where there's this fence that I can overlook the majority of the parking area at my apartment complex. And I see cops just swarming that apartment complex area. They're talking to my dad and my car has uh, Bluetooth audio in it, and I, my phone starts ringing and it's my dad calling me and I see him. They don't see me and I'm going, Oh, great. So, at this moment, I have a couple of choices. I can just go in the apartment, ignore the phone calls. Eventually, they're going to come knocking. I can try to run, but where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Eventually, it's going to catch up to me, and that's going to just make it 10,000 times worse. Or I can go down there and just face it and just face the music. I just went down there and faced the music. I'm like, they're going to ask me questions. All the explanation that I can give you right now is going to that I can give a police officer is going to fall totally on deaf ears. It doesn't matter what my intention was. I left the scene of a car accident that I caused. It's totally illegal to hit and run. 100%. Yeah. Plus I was under the influence of substance. That's a DUI. So now there's DUI hit and run. That's very, very bad. Very, very highly illegal. And they know who it was. They, a million cars were witnessed this thing and got my license plate. They thought when I went into the drug screening place that I took off out of my car into the creek. So they were looking for me in the creek. 
That's why they didn't catch me at the drug screening place or catch me sooner. That's why I was able to get all the way to my apartment complex because they just didn't notice me. And so they thought I had taken off and was running and I was just being a dope. So I go down, I face the music. They charged me with four felonies. Thankfully, now, not that it's ever ideal to get into a collision like that, but in a head-on collision where you're not accelerating and in fact your car is idling and barely creeping down the road, that's the ideal head-on collision. Did they arrest you? Yep. Charged, processed, arrested, thrown in jail. This time, I called my boss. He He's called the first me back. You called? Well, I called him because he was in Phoenix expecting me. He's like, what happened to this guy? I said, dude, I got arrested again. Here's what happened. I kind of explained the situation. He goes, I went to bat for you once. They, they let you stay, but I can't again. They're not going to do it. He goes, it's regrettable for me. I wish you would. I wish we could keep you on with us. I love having you around. You know, you're a super cool guy, but it's, they're just not going to, they're not going to do that again. So I was like, well, I understand. Same kind of situation with. Uh, my first job that I got fired from. And so that was like, oh, great. All right, well, there goes the greatest job I've ever had. So then I called Daniel, my brother, and I was like, is there any way? And he goes, dude, your bail is a $100,000. You have six felonies. I, I don't have anything worth what you would need to pay that bail. So I'm sitting in this jail cell, just broken. I've assessed my life and and all of the things that have led me to this point, just really looking at it like with no sense of hope about any action that I can take to fix this. It's just kind of been flushed down the toilet. How much um, time are you looking at? I, well, I, I wasn't really sure. Okay. But I had, I had gone to a court case uh, or, or a court hearing and they read my charges and I, I kind of asked the guy, I said, you know, my Sally, who was a kind of an experienced felon, <laughs> experienced criminal who'd done time and this and that. And I said, what, what do you think I'm looking at here? And he said, I, I would say probably 15 years maximum. And that like was a shock to my system. Just like, whoa. Okay. So I'm in a, I'm in serious trouble. Just looking at what do I have to show for this life? And I didn't have any relationships that were grounded in anything other than drugs and partying and those people that I, I, you know, thought were my friends, I would, I would kind of have an honest moment of self-assessment and just say, are they my friends or are they just people that I get high with and, and just run away from responsibility with, you know? And then I, my relationship with my girlfriend, it was very much an, a user relationship. I didn't have any love for her. I, I didn't care for her. I was using her. And it was just like, man, I, I really have made a mess of things in these last, it was really only about three years. And it was a reckoning for me. And I just, I just said, I, I know the answer because I was raised in a Christian and moral home. My parents have testimonies, testimonies where they dealt with addiction, dealt with drugs, dealt with, you know, the parting lifestyle. They had experiences with Christ where they were transformed. And so I knew that there was an answer for my problem. And I knew what it was. I knew that it was Jesus Christ. I knew that he could change me. And I just had to surrender. And so I, I had that head knowledge, but I never had that revelation when I was a kid. 
You know, I, I knew that Jesus, you know, Jesus died on the cross to save sinners, but I never really looked at myself as a sinner. It's like, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. But it was when I came to this revelation where it's like, actually, I'm really not good that I realized that Jesus is the answer for my unrighteous heart, for my sinful heart. So finally, I'm like, I got to call my parents. I know what they're going to say, and I'm willing to hear it. So I was, I was kind of humbling my pride a little bit and just saying, I don't care. I need to call them. And so I called my mom and I said, mom, I'm ready. And she knew what I meant. She knew that I was ready to pray and make a decision for Jesus. She had already put money on her phone so she could take the call right away, which was amazing. That meant she knew. And she's like, I'm just going to hope for a call. I never called her before in jail. Um, but this time I did, and, and she actually was planning on it. So I prayed in a jailhouse, just surrounded by criminals and hardened men. And I told you that I was very emotionally stunted, dead. dead. Yeah. And I wept, you know, for the first time since that year, right? When I was in Washington, I think God was taking steps to get me to this point. And I wept and I just... And I just got honest and I said, God, if you can do something with my life, it's yours. Everything that I'd ever heard about Christ meeting you in a moment was so real to me in that moment. And it was the revelation that I needed. It was what broke the bondage that had me totally tied up. I was freed from the addiction that had me bound because the creator of the universe met with me in that moment. And I began to understand, not just with my head, that Jesus died for your sins, but with my heart, what it meant to have the forgiveness of Christ and the deliverance of his blood. One who will go to extreme lengths to save people. We know how extreme the lengths God will go to because of Christ. Jesus coming down and dying on the cross, a gruesome and brutal and painful death is the length that Christ or Jesus, God will go ultimately to save a sinner. He'll go to very extreme lengths. And all of that was made real to me in that moment. And it totally set me free. You know, I read through, I read through the gospels in jail, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for the first time, I think in my whole life, I never read through them the whole way. I remember the night you got in that car accident, the uh -huh. head-on collision. Yeah. A little snippet that would probably be from your mom's side. She was doing a recovery meeting that we started where we just kind of had this idea. It was like our church is always doing all this, you know, evangelism. And Prescott's considered like one of the number one spots to come for rehab. And we're like, we could do a meeting we could even do a 12-step meeting because that was originally a Bible-based thing. And it's just a time that people can really get their testimonies. Anyway, so your mom was really into it. And so she would come. I remember she like jumps up in the middle of the meeting and runs out of the room and she's taking a phone call. I didn't think much of it. We're just continuing on. Well, she comes back in and she says, excuse me really quick we need to pray for my son, David. I didn't even know she had a son named David. I didn't know who her kids were or anything, but she said, 
I've been really praying for my son, David, and I think this is what's going to get his attention. And he needs to surrender his life to Christ. And we stopped the meeting and all of us prayed together, prayed for your salvation. She was really important in your conversion. Yeah. I think she really just believed God for you nonstop. I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't asking for it, but parents went, uh, went to bat for me. Uh, they bailed me out of jail early and I think it was about a month or so that went by. Then I got out, they got me out. It didn't clear me from any charges, but it, it meant I could get out of jail before sitting there for months on end, waiting for a, a trial sentencing. and a hearings, sentencing mm-hmm. and everything else. So I got out and on my way home from the jail, which is about a, an hour drive, me and my dad just had a, had a really good heart to heart. And he just said, you better be serious. We've gone to bat for you and you know, you got to mean this. And there were a couple of things that he said, this better happen immediately. You can't put a a delay on this. For instance, one of the things was I had this immoral relationship with this girl that I hadn't, I hadn't cut the relationship off. It was really hard because all leading up to this time, I had used her dispassionately, uncaringly, unempathetically used her. And in that moment, I actually cared. And it was like, ah, this is going to break her heart. And I don't want to do that. You know, before it would have been like, whatever, later for you. I don't really care. But I was, Jesus gave me some, gave some care heart. for people, gave me a little heart. And I was like, oh, this is going to be rough. She came and visited me in jail. She had, she was there for me when I was at a low point. But it's like, at the end of the day, this is immoral, has been, and I'm a Christian now. And she's not. And the Bible talks about not being unequally yoked. There's a lot of reasons here, but I said, I got to do it. So literally on the way home from the jail, I called her up and I ended the relationship. And uh, she, for, for a little while, you know, I, I pretty much told her on the phone, I said, I'm, I'm serving God now. I'm going to be in church every service. It's, I'm going a different path in life at this point. And she's like, oh, well, yeah, we can do that. That's great. We'll do it together. And I was like, "Mm, you're not getting me. I said, there is no way that you and I are having a relationship for minimum six months and maybe not even after that. I can't promise you, but I'm telling you that just this decision right here says no contact for six months minimum. And so she came to church a little bit and ultimately realized that he's not my boyfriend anymore. He's doing something different. And so she kind of faded away. But yeah, there were a lot of things that came. The consequences started to sort of pour in. It wasn't, it wasn't all sunshine and roses, but the addiction was gone. God had fixed the addiction problem. He had taken that in a moment's time. Not that there were never moments of temptation or maybe even struggling with the thought of, yeah, it would be kind of fun to go out and get high with my buddies. I had to take a stand against my friends too. There was one night uh, very early on after I got out of jail where my buddies and I kind of ran into each other and it was like, let's go hang out guys. Let's, let's, let's go get, let's go get drunk. You know, I'm like, I I probably shouldn't get high because, you know, I'm taking these drug tests, but like, if there's anything, you, you know, that won't show up on a test, maybe that was a night after I had gotten out of jail, but thank God for my parents who were, who were like, were financially invested in this. guy making it (laughs) and beyond that they care about me and so they said they just said absolutely not you're not gonna go hang out with those guys and it was like 
yeah, why would I? Yeah. I'm going to destroy my life again. I'm literally facing years in prison. I'm going to go party for fun. Oh, duh. Of course not. And so, and so it was like really, really good for me to have a, have a, a strong amount of accountability, which was mm-hmm. ultimately what came as, as uh, part of the consequences. I was placed into a program known as drug court, which for those who are familiar, you're going to go, Oh, drug court. And those that aren't familiar, uh, just to kind of give you some understanding of this, it's essentially extreme levels of accountability backed by an enforcement arm. Basically you sign up for this thing. It's a volunteer program. You can pick prison or this. And, uh, in my sentencing, they said, uh, they gave me a choice. They said three years of probation in drug court. If you don't want to do drug court, that's fine. We'll send you to prison for three years. And I said, anything but prison, I'll do it. I'll sign up. And so that meant for me, this system that's high accountability, you're, you're required to take multiple drug tests randomly every week. You are, especially in the first 90 days of, of the drug court program, required to attend many, 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 many drug treatment meetings, just daily, sometimes more than one a day. Oftentimes you'll, there's varying requirements for different people, but oftentimes they'll require a rehab program, among other things. So it's just a highly high level of accountability backed by the potential of you can, you can be thrown in jail for a couple of days. If you don't take a drug test, for instance, you miss one, or if you miss a meeting, you could be given extra community service. So there's a a large amount of incentive to maintain your, your sobriety during this whole thing. I remember when I was working in, in mental health, there was people who would prefer prison over drug court because it was that intense. Yeah. I always said that that for anybody who's sober and surrendered, right, it's not difficult. It's just just show up where you're supposed to be. What's the difficulty there? You know what I mean? It's just ta- taxing. It right? is very taxing. Yeah, it is very taxing, and you do get sick of it. You know, especially they're pretty hardcore in drug court. Depending on the situation, I've I've even seen people banned from drinking energy drinks in drug court. Yeah, they're, they can be that. they can be really strict. Yeah, and so. You are like it's requiring discipline that you have exactly. never ever been. But there are people who will stop using marijuana and immediately drink seventeen Red Bulls a day. Right, you're replacing your addiction for now right. with something that's you know not good for you. But ultimately, you're just gonna if you're just if you're just swapping one thing for another, then chances are you're just ultimately gonna go back to the thing that's better than seventeen Red Bulls a day. So in that, in that situation. A lot of people would just say, no, forget this. I don't want to go to rehab. I don't want to be, have my, I guess, freedom so restricted, which is hilarious because in prison, your freedom is very restricted. You can't leave these four walls. But you can get drugs. That's true. That's, that's why a lot of people opt into that. So anyway, for me, it was just, it was, it was grueling. It was difficult, but it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm right with God. I'm saved. I'm, I don't want to get high. I don't want to do the stuff I used to do. You know, and again, like I said, there were moments of momentary temptation, but ultimately I had made up my mind. I had set my will that I'm serving Jesus and God helped me through it. Did you feel like you finally understood what worshiping God was about? hundred percent. Everything I'd ever seen as a kid started to make sense now. 
So you go from, this is just religious activity to this is worship of the creator of the universe who loves us and sent his son to die. That's like, when you have that revelation, revelation is the, is the key to all of it. It's like, wow, I am so privileged to be able to worship in the house of God right now. Yeah. I should be dead on the side of the road yep. for all that I've done in my life. I, I don't deserve this level of grace and love. And so that's the difference is you start to recognize with some humility, man, God is really good. You know, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's like, once you do, it's like, okay, yeah, all the, all the garbage that I was looking for, I realize it tasted like garbage when you, mm-hmm. when you really weigh it against. And there are a lot of miracles that happen along the way. There's one, uh, especially towards the end. I was, I was graduating from drug court. It's just so looking forward that I was marking the days on my calendar, counting them down. It was very close to the end. And like you said, it's taxing. I was, I was exhausted of this. I just wanted to be done with this. I wanted to have some sense of normalcy in my life back. And so, um, I was getting close to the end and they had a a mandatory graduation. And I'm just like, this is the dumbest thing. We're, we're graduating from something that no one here wants a plaque that says, Hey, you did it. (laughs) I mean, I guess maybe there are some people that, that when you achieve something like that, you've been a, you've been a failure your whole life and you actually made an achievement. I could see the, I could see the value in that. But then, you know, this was not my first graduation in my life. And so I'm like, this is silly. I don't want to be a part of this. I just, I was grueling. It was grueling to me. And it was during a Wednesday night, uh, a Wednesday night, uh, during a Jerry Fussell revival. And I wanted to be in church. I was just like, I wanted to soak in everything. I was kind of a new convert. You know, I was about a year and a half saved. And I'm just like, I just don't want to be a part of this. I want to soak in God. I want to just be in the presence of God. And this is driving me insane. But I went to the graduation it was an opportunity. So I said, I'm going to make the best of this. This is an opportunity for me to give God the glory in this situation. And I said, uh, you know, each of us graduating got an opportunity to speak and say a few things. And I just said, this wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for Jesus. Um, he's the one who, who changed my life and set me free. And it's not like I was the only one giving Jesus glory or God glory in my, in my sobriety. But uh, it was interesting because my probation officer, who I had had prior to drug court, when I was still running amok, the 10 failed UAs, all that, the same woman, she had uh, been my probation officer for a majority of the time through drug court. And she said something about each of the people. But when she got to me, she stopped and she started crying, visible tears. And she she goes, I have never experienced anyone so dramatically changed. It's amazing. And so it was just a it was just an awesome moment because it was like that's that's because of Christ. And I think she recognized that because my mom had told her something when when I they bailed me out of jail and I and I had repented. She said, "You're never going to have problems with this guy again." And yeah, she just it was it was a really awesome moment. Um I left there. I was frustrated. I'm like, Ugh, this church. I really want to be in the presence of God. And uh, God told me on the on the car ride home. I'm actually driving home, the opposite direction of the church, 
God told me, no, you need to go to the church. I have a word for you. I was like, okay. So I drove to church. I'm like, it's going to be over. I'm, and so I, I walk in, my parents were there. They, uh, were, it was, it was altar call. People were at the altar. Um, people were standing up singing. I went and stood by my mom and evangelist Jerry Fussell walks down the aisle, walks directly to me and gave me a word about, uh, making sure that I had close friends to avoid the deep pits in life. It was a powerful word in a, in a moment that I really needed to hear it. So I, it was just, it was crazy yeah, how cool God, reference point. God yeah. was helping me through this. So after the, the, the like plaque ceremony graduation, we had the, the official last day of court, which was really neat for me. So the day before I go to the courthouse, I had, I had fines due. I had some court ordered money to pay for various things. And so I'm there, I'm at the court. I'm, I'm there with $750. It was the last dollar amount I had left on my fines, but I wanted it to be paid before my last day of court so that I didn't have to keep coming back here. I was getting kind of sick of this. So I had the $750 in my pocket going, I'm going to pay off these fines and be done with this. And, uh, I go in and they go, hang on a second. Uh, something looks wrong here. I'm like, Oh, did they miscalculate? I really owe $7,000. <laughs> and I'm just like, ah, oh, this is great. And she, she goes, I need to call my supervisor. And she, it's like 30, 45 minutes are going by. I'm sitting here and going, what is taking so long? Finally, she leans back over to me and she says, um, just so you know, what we, what we found is that there was an error in our system. And for the last year and a half, you've been overpaying your court fees and we actually owe you money. We owe you $250. So your fines are paid in full and we'll send you a check. I was like, yes. And uh, just like, I walked out of there and I was like, praise God. I cannot believe that. <laughs> so I just did a $950 swing, yeah. you know, at the, at the final buzzer. It's just like, yes. And so thousand thousand dollars, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. 150, 250 plus 750. You're right. It's a thousand bucks. I'm going into my last day of drug court on this high. I'm like, yes. And, uh, and so granted, this is a year and a half in, I had three years of probation officially. And so a year and a half in, I walk in, it's my final day. She goes, my name gets called. I go up to the judge and she says, Hey, uh, you know, I heard something about you. I said, what's that? She goes, I heard that you've already paid off all your fines. I said, I said, yeah, actually, um, I've, I've been overpaying on my fines for the last, you know, year and a half. And so, uh, the court actually owes me a little bit of money. She goes, really? I said, yeah, I didn't realize it, but she goes, huh, that's really, that's really interesting. You know what? I want you guys to look at this guy. This is an example of somebody that you should emulate in this court. And she goes, you know what? This is your last day of drug court. I said, yeah, it is. She goes, hang on a second. I'm going to make a motion. And she makes a motion and she officially signs the paper to release me from probation a year and a half early. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm like, first of all, God did this miracle where like I, I not only saved the $750 I was about to pay, but I got $250. Mm -hmm. And because of that, because of this, this thing that, you know, I should have been grouchy about like, Oh, I've been overpaying and they didn't tell me they made this error. 
but God used it. And the next day they released me from probation. It was like total miracle. And so now it's like, dude, I'm done. Cannot believe it. I'm done with the court system way earlier than I expected to be. And so it was like, cool. I, I walked out of the court, a free man, totally done with this. And so I'm like, great, I'm going to, I'm going to start getting serious. And up to this point, it was very difficult to really see myself as a disciple because it was like, everything's in flux right now. I could, I could get thrown in jail for five days in a row. You know, I, I, it's, it's very difficult to take on any kind of responsibility as a, in, in ministry or discipleship or anything like that. If there's questions about you could get in trouble for drinking a, an energy drink and go to, go to jail, <laughs> for instance, you know, I, that I was necessarily restricted that heavily, but, but after I got out, I, I decided I'm going to get really serious about discipleship. I told my pastor, I wanted to be a disciple and, uh, I began to pursue the calling of God for my life. And there were a couple of things I needed to deal with. You know, I, I, God had delivered me from, from drug addiction, but I was still smoking cigarettes. And, and this is another miracle that I think is going to be helpful to some people. I was, I was closeted smoking. I wasn't blatant about it necessarily. I was very much keeping it a secret. It wasn't something I was doing at church. I was trying to keep it under wraps, but it was something I was struggling with. And God is like, when you're a Christian who smokes every sermon is a quit smoking sermon <laughs> is that you could be delivered from this thing. And I'm like, I know Even I can be I've delivered. I've never heard them say that. The it's thing. never been, it's never been like expressly said, but that's, the that's Holy what the Holy Spirit, ghost does yeah. is when you're dealing with a secret sin, the Holy ghost puts his finger right on that every sermon. And it's like, ah, God, just leave me alone. I, I'm, I'm trying, I can't tell you how many packs of cigarettes I crushed in those two years where I was struggling with this. But, it came to a point where I was, I was getting ready to be involved in public ministry. And I said, this is not right. Is there something wrong about, you know, imagine, imagine if you, you, you know, you hear this powerful sermon from a pastor about how you can be delivered. And then you walk outside and he's out back smoking a stogie. You're like, okay, you can be delivered, huh? Huh, pal? Right. It's just, there's no credibility to someone like that. Who's just doing this thing. That's clearly a, an addiction clearly not good for you. And so I'm like, I, I got to deal with this. And God is convicting me every single sermon. I'm getting ready to be involved in public ministry. I'd actually signed up to be a part of a play. And it was the first production we were doing and I was going to go on. And I had this closeted thing that I was doing. I didn't really tell anybody about it. You know, it was just like uh, a couple handful of people knew I'd been busted once or twice you know, obviously you smell like cigarettes. It's really hard to cover that. And uh, I just felt so convicted, but I'm praying before the start of this drama program of the play. And I'm just like, I'm feeling the weight of, of what if there's people in this place tonight that don't get saved because of this battle that I'm having with my flesh. And that conviction is, is hitting me heavy. It's just like, God wants to save people, but I'm I could be blocking God in this. And it was in that moment, I very nearly audibly heard the voice of God say to me, crush your cigarettes and throw them away. And I can't tell you how many packs of cigarettes I have crushed and thrown away. 
But in that moment, something the what the difference for me in that moment was it was not just me saying I should do this thing, I should change myself, I should change my behavior, but it was God telling me change your behavior. It was very different. Hmm. Hard to describe the exact feeling of that, but anybody who's experienced that kind of deliverance, that kind of miracle, or God's voice almost audibly telling them very directly to do something, and it's undeniable. I just obeyed. I got up from my chair. I took my cigarettes out of my jacket pocket. I went outside privately in the alleyway where there was a trash bin. I crushed the cigarettes and threw the lighter and the cigarettes in the trash, washed my hands of it and said, okay, God, I did what you said. And, and I, in my head, I was kind of like, yeah, we'll see. I've crushed cigarettes before. I've felt like convicted about this before, but in that, in that moment, it was just like, I'm done. And the next day I didn't go buy another pack. And the next day after that, I didn't go buy another pack. And down the road, before I realized it, I'm like, I have not smoked cigarettes in months. So there's an actual, there's an actual miracle of deliverance there. Totally. Before when you would crush the cigarettes, maybe I don't know how many days would go by, but you're white knuckling it. Yes. Where the desire's there. So- the desire was gone? The desire was gone. Yeah. It was a miracle. I I don't know how else to describe it other mm-hmm. than I was delivered from it. And the same the same with the meth. Yeah. Because yeah. you couldn't do it before. Ted Correct. failed you A's, even mm-hmm. though you're looking at prison, yep. and then you have an encounter with Christ and God removed the desire. Yeah. It's when I've had those like real moments of 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 surrender before God. Okay. You know, that's, that's what the miracle is ultimately, in my opinion, is rooted in is, is a moment of surrender. God tells you do something and you do, and you just obey, right? Wow. When I obeyed God in the jail cell and humbled myself enough to, to call up my, my parents and, and pray okay. a sinner's prayer, honestly, that's when the miracle happened. When I obeyed God in the, in the, in under conviction for smoking, that's where the miracle happened for that. Wow. So yeah, obedience, surrender. It's it's very it's very cliched to say it, especially it, anyone in in recovery is gonna have heard the saying, "You have to surrender mm-hmm. forty thousand times since Sunday." Yeah, and it sounds very cliched, but until you make it a heart issue, until you really say yes, I surrender to God, that's when that's when God really, I think says, okay, all right, you're serious. And that can be hard because there's a lot of things involved in surrender. There's humility, which is not fun, especially for men, because you have to say I'm wrong, you know, and I don't like being wrong. Melissa knows this. I don't like being wrong. I don't like being perceived as wrong. I like knowing a lot of things and I like thinking that I'm right all the time. But, uh, but sometimes you have to be able to admit that you're wrong. And God can, God can work with that. But what that ultimately led to when I, when I surrendered the, the cigarette addiction was that now I can get serious about, about finding a wife and, uh, you know, which <laughs> a lot of bachelors out there that want to be disciples, but at the end of the day, you need a partner in this. And so we could probably get into the story. I don't know how much you want to get into that, but I started looking around the church at potential candidates. There's a lot of people you know, my, uh, that, that were single girls that, 
yeah, they were cool. But Melissa, Melissa and I had had several interactions before any kind of dating relationship, just as friends would, uh, would go outreach for our drug recovery meetings. (laughs) Melissa and I, we'd infiltrate AA, NA, basically just infiltrate them because in any, in any kind of uh, recovery meeting, there's a time where they say, if you have a burning desire to speak. And so we would say, we have a burning desire to speak. We would like to promote a play for the recovery community. Anyways. And we just had realized I, it was a great strategy yeah, that your it was dad a came up with. Fabulous marketing strategy. And it so. was it was basically like a grassroots to get people because we were looking around. We're like, you know, they're not passing out flyers to these meetings. This is you're in the community and you're telling them about this new meeting that started yeah, or this exactly. play. And man, it ended up being really successful. But I think that was the first time that we probably hung out it was valentine's day which is so random i was single you were single maureen was single and after we had infiltrated a couple meetings and promoted this play you actually offered to take us out to dinner <laughs> yeah we're, I, I was i was thinking you know i'm i'm a i'm a gentleman it was kind of me and melissa our first interaction together as friends where we yeah. kind of got to know each other yeah and, and you told me your testimony that yeah, night. Yeah, I think so, right? You were I, telling me stories about like dust off and passing out and all this stuff. And all I knew at that point was that you were Carrie's son that we had been praying for. Right. And I was like, man, this guy has a really cool testimony. But I was still kind of a raw convert. I, 100% know, still raw. So, so Melissa has no, in that moment, no interest in me at all. But I kind of, I kind of had a crush on her, to be honest. So I'm crushing on this girl. So I'm like, now's my chance. I, yeah. <laughs> I just, I'll invite... <laughs> I'll invite her and the other girl. They're single. I'm single. I'll I'll take them out for Valentine's Day, you know, and it'll just be a, it'll just be a cordial thing. You know, I'm not going to try and make a move or anything. It was point, 100% not, really. not like that. So, totally, it was yeah. just kind of random, but it was a fun thing to do. But I was, I was definitely, I definitely had a crush and uh, that was our first real interaction as friends. And then later on, fast forward a couple years later, now I'm starting to look. My dad goes, Hey, it's conference. Let's have an open invite thing at our house. And I was like, you guys are awesome. Sounds fantastic. I'll do it. I'll, I'll tell my few people to tell their few people to tell their few people. And suddenly it grows into like this 500 person get together. So much fun. But also crazy, impossible to really mingle and be your best self. So I end up, I end up me and me and my dad just kind of like, we just kind of like hide in a, in a back room. Just like, this is, this is madness. (laughs) Good idea in in theory, but it's kind of madness. And somehow, Melissa, I think you were running away from somebody trying to set you up. I was running away from a setup that I was not into. Okay. She comes back and just hangs out with me and my dad and just chats with us for like three hours and then eventually bails. And my dad goes, at the end of it, my dad goes, well, did you talk to anybody you liked? You know, I go, yeah, actually, I really like Melissa. He goes, yeah, right, Dave. Completely out of your league. That's a stretch. I was like, wow, dad. Thanks for the vote of confidence. You know, it was a super engaging conversation, but my dad like shuts me down in that moment. And then the third time, Melissa is no longer single. She was dating someone else, but she had been trying very hard to help out her other single friends. She's a, she's a matchmaker of sorts. Highly successful. Highly successful people. Highly, Highly successful people have told me. Hey, one of I the just greatest. will introduce you. The magic's up to you, okay? I'm not like the pushy <laughs> matchmaker. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but she knew I was single and she invited me out with a bunch of her single friends. But in that moment, I had no idea she was dating someone else. I thought she was still single. 
but you know, this is months down the road and she invited me out specifically. So I was like, Oh, maybe she likes me too. During that whole dinner party and everything, she's, she's interacting with me and, and I'm like feeling super duper confident, dynamic and, and cool. <laughs> I got, I get home and I find out I find really out. quick, really quick. <laughs> this was going on in my mind. I always thought David was cool. I always thought he was just a really fun personality. I can't say I thought of him romantically at this point, but I was like, man, he would be really good with, and I had like a couple people in mind that were there. Well, I get there and I think it's the pastor's kid in me. I feel personally responsible to make sure every single person is having fun. <laughs> And I'll, I'll point out the the people that Melissa had at this dinner. A lot of them were very shy and didn't know each types, other, and no one knew each other. And so Melissa is engaging everybody, but she knows that I'll engage too. Exactly. And so she's engaging me to kind of bring everybody. In well, so that that's why some... I sat next to you. So what right. happened is I arrived at the scene, and I'm like, "Oh, this is no good. We got." All these girls on one side of the table that are just kind of quietly talking to the person next to them. And then there's two guys across from them. I'm like, I'm not going to go join the girls on the one side of the table. I knew there's more guys coming, but I'm like, I want them to mingle. Yeah. And I had set this up because the person I was dating at the time was coming the next day. So I'm like, this is my single friend night. And so I'm like, okay, I'll sit next to David. So little did I know I was communicating to him like, ooh, yeah. she asked me and then she sat next to me. And then me and David were having a good time and we were, we were getting other people to interact. Yeah. So, so I realized we make a great couple <laughs> <laughs> in that moment. So I called one of my, one of my buddies and I go, dude, I had this great time. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like, I had this great time with Melissa. It was amazing. Like she invited me out. It was so fun. She sat by me and it was great. And, and we had a great time. We had a great conversation. I'm like, I'm thinking I might ask her out. I, I already had her number because we'd interact at other times in uh, different venues. But, and so I'm like, I might, I might ask her out. And uh, the buddy goes, dude, you, you don't know. She's, she's dating. And I was like, what? What was all that? So now I very quickly pivoted. I was like, ooh, I'm embarrassed now. And Melissa and I, we, we'd had several other interactions, but in, in my estimation, after that third interaction where I was shut down for a third time, I was like, okay, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just crazy. Melissa's just cool. She looks at me like a, a friend, whatever. I began to, to back off. I, you know, I, I would still talk to her and, and be friendly and everything else. You know, I just said the relationship is, is limited. Later through circumstance or whatever, the, the relationship that Melissa was in, ended and I didn't know this. My head is, is totally like she's off limits. And so Melissa, I think you, I think you actually like intentionally, I work on computers for a living. And so she, she broke her computer on purpose. I believe <laughs> no, I did I'm not. just kidding. I'm kidding. No, no. She, she asked me to, she asked me to, to work on a computer that she had install some software and whatever. And we just, we just started talking like texting back and forth a lot. But in my head, it was still kind of like, yeah, she's just cool. She's just a friend. But she kind of, I think you were kind of starting to pick up some, some like, at least entertain the idea yeah. of dating me. Like, he's really cool, actually. Right? Yeah. And this is a miracle as well, because I was <laughs> <laughs> very much bumbling my way through life with her at this point. From my perspective, I just remember I had never seen David that way, but 
we were, we ended up working together. So for um, a period of time, our church had started a rehab and I was the office manager there. David, he was the IT, he was like a contracted IT guy. So if anything went wrong, he'd come and fix it for us. And so we started interacting a little bit more because I'd have to call him to work on different things. And what I remember about David is he was just, he was kind of like, I said this at the beginning, but he's like hard to figure out. Like I like to figure out people's personalities. He used to play this game in banking all the time. I'd have people across from me and I would get so bored at what I always did redundantly that instead I was like studying human nature and how they interacted and this and that. Anyway, so I was doing this with David and I'm like, man, I can't figure this guy out. He's so funny. And he would drive up and I remember he had gotten in an accident in his car <laughs> Hadn't fixed his car. And so it looked like Frankenstein. I think he had zip tied the bumper on and all this stuff. And he was trying to save all his money for drug court and all that or whatever was going on. I don't know. But anyway, he had zip tied it together. And so he would come flying up to the building and it was the type of glass where you could see out, but they couldn't see in. And I would see him in his car and he would have his music so loud and like you'd hear it in bumping. the building. Yeah. So like the whole <laughs> building is shaking. This guy is bumping praise music. Okay. Like how great is our God or something, you know, and he's in there and I'm like watching him and he is singing at the top of his lungs. Like you literally could just see his mouth because his head's back and he's like singing and he finishes song and then he'd like jump out of the car and slam the door and just like walk in. He just seriously like just brightened the place. Like every time he would come, he was making people laugh. He was just like this larger than life character. And so how it started for me is all of a sudden, like one day when he was like coming in the office and stuff, I just remember this passing thought. If I was on the phone, he would like immediately start tormenting me or like pretending like he was going to hang it up or like making a lot of noise like he just was just did i do that to you yes oh yes. my gosh and so what i'm like what a so guy i'm like sitting there <laughs> it was a very serious and sombering setting like recovery just is especially like i'm t i'm working with intakes i'm hearing everybody's stories and there's just a lot of heaviness like there's people who's making it there's people who's not there's relapses there's overdoses it's just it's kind of hopeful because we had Christ and, and good stories too, but it was just a very emotional setting. And then in comes this guy who's like, never got a care in the world coming up with his music blasting and then always just making everybody laugh. And he was like, kind of just refreshing to be honest. And then I'm sitting there <laughs> and I just remember this passing thought that was like, whoever marries that they're, guy. They're probably weren't, not everybody in there was thinking I was refreshing when I'd show up. Probably they were like, Okay. Okay. No, I the, think no. Here comes Renee, the class clown. Honey, Renee loved you. The counselor <laughs> there was in love with him for the same uh, reason that I fell in love with uh, you, which was just like you just lightened it. It was funny. You're just a funny person. So we're sitting there, and I just remember I had this passing thought, and it was whoever marries David is gonna have fun for the rest of their life. It was just kind of this thing where it's like, do I have a crush on David? Yeah. She had and to realize it. That's what I shared with my best friend. And it was, it was very beginning stages where you don't want the person to know yet. And then you're like, I have no idea if he's interested in me, blah, blah, blah. Are we just friends? And her best friend is married to my best friend. Just so happens. 
And uh, he overheard, wasn't told, it wasn't a violation, but he overheard. And he just, as a good bro, could not not tell me that Melissa kind of liked me. And just <laughs> at nearly the detriment of his own life. <laughs> oh my He's a Mexican guy who looked white as a ghost when he got in trouble. <laughs> but uh, at the detriment of his own life, having a buddy's back, no man left behind. A lot more to the story, but ultimately, Melissa and I were married. But before our wedding, I had been running a business because during the whole drug court thing, I realized that I could either flip burgers or do what I'm good at, uh, which is... IT related stuff, computer networking, computer repair, et cetera. And so I started a small business years prior. I was doing that and it was good because I didn't have to, I, I didn't have to submit to like background checks and, and all these things that can get a little dicey uh, in the IT industry. People are very sketchy about individuals with backgrounds because you're dealing with private information very often. And so if you're a sketchy individual with a checkered past, they want to know it. And it can often exclude you from certain jobs. And so with that in mind, I was just doing my own thing because it, it kind of omitted me from a lot of that. And Melissa and I are looking to get married. We wanted to travel internationally for our honeymoon. Melissa had a vision of, of going to Italy for our honeymoon. And I said, great, let's do it. We found these amazing tickets for like $400 round yeah, trip. Yeah. And we're during, like, oh, we can actually some, afford this. It was during some times of heightened terrorism, which we didn't realize. Something but like that. <laughs> irrelevant. Yeah. Irrelevant but we, found, we got a great deal. We got a great deal. And so we were like, oh, we could do this. And then after we purchased them, I just all of a sudden was like, dude, I could just see us at yeah. the border of Italy. Oh, that's right. And them telling David, you can't come in because you're a felon. Yeah. So my pastor at the time, Angel Morales, Pastor Angel Morales, he also had a checkered past and had had his rights restored. Yeah. And I thought I thought this was a process of, of hire attorneys and pay a million dollars and and it's just like this whole headache. He totally called me of that notion and he said, "No, it's really easy. You just go in, you fill out some paperwork and and it's very straightforward." I said, "Oh, okay." He said, "How much time do I need between between now and my crimes or whatever. And he said, ah, you could probably do it now. I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I was about a year off probation at this point, which technically I would have still been on probation yeah. if I hadn't been released. So that was a miracle too. I go into the court, fill out the paperwork and send it off. And it was maybe a week or two later, they send me back a thing that says your, your record has been sealed. They sealed the record, which essentially restores your rights as a citizen. So I could vote, I could everything else. And it was like, cool. I got my rights restored. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Okay. So I'll go apply for a passport. Sure enough, I was able to get a passport. That was great. So we went, we had a great honeymoon. In the meantime, though, I actually had also, because of this rights restoration, I was like, I decided I wanted to get something a little bit more stable, some more stable employment before I got married. Up to this point, I'd never even held down a job for longer than a year because of all the drugs and craziness. And so I was like, I, I probably should stabilize my employment a little bit more than just self-employment. So I applied for this job at uh, Yavapai College, which was where I graduated from college. There was a job opening there to happen to be as a professor in computer networking, which is what I had been educated in and been experienced in. And so I applied for the job, not thinking anything. I'm like, they're going to run a background check. They're going to 
they're going to see this, but I had just gotten my rights restored and I was thinking maybe that'll help. Maybe that'll be good for it. And I get a call from the HR department at Yavapai College. They said, Hey, uh, so we got your, we got your resume. We really like your qualifications. We think we can make this work. I just wanted to ask you about some things we found on your background check. We got your background check back and I just wanted to ask you about a couple of things. And I'm like, oh, great. They're going to ask me about it. They're going to want to know all the details of this, that, and the other thing. So we see you have several charges that are related to drug use and drug crimes, drug possession. I just was very honest, the HR person. I just said, yeah, it's all, it's all accurate. I am 100% guilty of the crimes. I certainly did do them. And I said, I have a degree of separation from that now. I've I even told her, I said, I've given my life to Christ. I haven't touched drugs. Be willing to submit to a drug test, no problem. In fact, I had already done one, I think. And I said, you'll find that it's clean of all substances. And I, I just very honest with her. And I was thinking, she doesn't care. They're, they don't care about, oh, yeah, this how is many the days next sober. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how many days sober. But I, 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 didn't, I didn't own addiction. I didn't say, yes, yeah. I'm a drug addict. And my, hi, my name is David and I'm a drug addict. No, I didn't. I didn't own it. I didn't own it like the the narcotics anonymous way. I, I think that's garbage. So I was just honest with her and I, I hung up the phone. I'm thinking, well, we'll see. But they hired me, which I believe was miraculous in and of itself. Yeah. I think God, I believe that job was given to me by God. And I think God wanted me to learn some things in that. I really did break through my inhibition. Like I told you, Early on in my testimony, I had a lot of inhibitions as a kid, but what I learned is a lot of a lot about leadership. I mean, because you, when you're a professor, you're in charge of this room. These people are under your direct authority. This is your classroom. There's there's confrontation skills involved there. You got to say, hey man, if you don't if you don't turn in these assignments, I'm gonna fail you. Right? That's that's a hard thing to do. Or confront people cheating. A cheaters. Oh, I hate yeah. it. So if I caught a cheater, I would always confront that. And I didn't like it. It's never fun, but it's like, hey man, not going to work. Zero on the assignment. Technically you could be expelled from the college for this, you know? And it was an opportunity for some grace too. Like, hey, you're getting a zero, but you're not getting expelled. But I believe that job was a miracle. Part of the job though, was they wanted me to teach high school students, which if you're doing anything below higher education and that requires an even harder background check called called fingerprint clearance. What I remember is you started off at the college, you were loving it. You yeah. were absolutely mm-hmm. loving it. And I remember it's probably October, November. You're like, Melissa, they want me in January to start doing like a dual enrollment where you're teaching high school. Yeah. I remember you telling me, but I'm so nervous because they need a fingerprint clearance card and I won't pass. Yeah. There's no way I can get a fingerprint clearance card. And I'm like, well, just tell them you can't do the classes. And I remember you saying, that is so embarrassing. I'm already the youngest person here. I just started. And now I'm going to tell them I won't pass that. Yeah. I think you and me even prayed about it. We just said, let's pray about this and just and just try. Yes, exactly. Prayed about it. And then let's look into trying to see if we can clear up your name where you could get a fingerprint clearance card. And that started... The pursuit of that. Okay. So, so there's a number of things that lined up beautifully. When you look back, you're like, wow, that lined up, that lined up, that lined up. This was all things that had to happen in order for this to work. So the first thing that, that happened was there was a, there was a guy that I went through drug court with, and he also had to get a fingerprint clearance card. And he said, 
I was able to get mine and I have felonies over multiple states and it was a very difficult thing. I had to go before a review board and this and that and the other thing. And I was going, oh man, this is going to be a whole entire headache. Just like I thought with the rights, mm -hmm. because he's, he's telling me that it's possible, but difficult. So I said, ah, oh, great. So I said, okay, well, at least I know that it's not impossible now. There is a chance. He said, submit the paperwork. They will reject you. Then you submit the, uh, the follow-up paperwork to, to appeal the rejection. And that's where it goes before a board. So I sent in the paperwork. Obviously they rejected it. And then I sent in the appeal with just like some basic things. There was, there was a few things that they asked for in the documentation that they sent me. They asked for some letters of referral and stuff like that. And I sent it all back in just thinking, okay, I'm going to get my hearing now. A couple days later, I get a phone call. I pick up the phone. I say, hello. The guy goes, yeah, I got your, I got your paperwork and I'm getting ready to submit it to the board, but I, I've been reading your case and I'm not the one who makes the decision. I'm just following up on, on the paperwork here that I've seen. And I think you would be better suited if you submitted this document, this document, this document, this. I really don't know why I'm telling you this, but I, I want to help you. And so I'm like, dude, we yes. prayed and God influenced this guy, <laughs> this random bureaucrat. He does not have to call me. He, he doesn't know me from Adam. He just happens to be reviewing my paperwork that day. I don't know how it ended up on this guy's desk, but I guess God put it on his heart to call me and tell me exactly what I would need to get this certified. And I sent in the additional paperwork and he said, excellent, I've got it. Normally you would have to mail it in. He said, can you just email it to me right now? I'll print it out and put it in your file. So I emailed it to the guy. He puts it in my file right then and there and submits it. And within, you know, maybe a week or two, I had the, I had the paperwork. It came through, I think it was like December 5th. It was before the new year. All I remember is that it came through in December and you really needed it before January because that's when they were going to review it. Right. And the cool thing was I was able to go to the administrative office and once I got the card and I said, do you have my fingerprint clearance? <laughs> and they go, no, we haven't. That's we right. need that. And I said, oh, it's right here. And I yes. gave it to them. It's great. So you got your so, rights yeah. restored. You got that. And then next you actually got your gun rights restored. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I. So originally when I first applied for my rights, I'm like, I'm going to leave the gun rights off because it's way more likely to be rejected if you request that. Later, I was like, well, now everything else is cleared up. The only thing left to make me kind of like a normal guy again, normal taxpaying American citizen is my uh, Second Amendment rights. So I just said, I'm going to go ahead and file for it. What's the worst that could happen? Another rejection letter? I haven't gotten one of those yet, so. And your friends all pitched in and got you a gun on your birthday. So miracles all together. It was like just getting all those things restored. And then there's been miracles in our marriage, I feel like, from the very, very beginning at conference before we got married. We were getting married in September. It was July. And we had at that time already like got a joint account where we were putting money in to save for our mm -hmm. wedding. And we were talking about an offering and it was just really bad timing yeah. because we we're like, ah, you know, we're trying to save for this. We're trying to save for that. And so I remember us making a decision that after we got married, our very first full paycheck, we would give to God 
just says an offering to him. Yeah. It's like, God, a you token have of our marriage, appreciation, a token of our appreciation. And from there, it was it was your job. And then it was the fingerprints clearance card. And then in yeah. January, we started looking for a house. David really, 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 with all of his heart, wanted to live in Prescott. But the crazy thing about living in Prescott is it was way above what we could afford and we were like looking at these houses that were like 900 square foot like that's what we could afford for what we wanted to pay and then this amazing opportunity from someone he knew came up where the guy's like well you know i bought this way under market but it needs work and i'll be willing to give you thirty thousand dollars you guys can fix it up however you want and i'll sell it to you at the exact price that this is what we want to pay. Yeah. This is what we want our mortgage to be. Yeah. And it's just, if you looked at David, he's a professor at the college. Still has his, his own business that was doing well. He's got his own home. He's mm-hmm. married. He's got a kid. He had a little boy right away. And it was like your life literally looked completely different than it had maybe, yeah. what, three years prior? It, it, honestly, it feels... And I, and I talked to a lot of people about this that, that have gotten distant from any kind of checkered past. It feels like I'm talking about someone else. It feels like a guy that, I mean, I can, I can still recall the emotions and, and, and the memory of it, but it feels almost dreamlike. Like I'm telling you a story about a dream that I had. It, it's, it's surreal to even recount my life in this in this detail of a manner because yeah it's i i don't i don't i don't recognize that guy there's a lot of dry drunks out there or dry addicts however you want to say it where where their sheer willpower like they're they're hanging on they're gripping on i'm sober i've been sober 30 days i've been sober 45 days i've been sober 50 days you know they're so aware of it they're talking about what triggered them every night did you have any triggers today are you walking around triggered No, I think that's a critical perspective too. I think you have to begin to see yourself as a new creation in Christ. If, if you're walking around going, yeah, my name is Dave and I'm a drug addict for 25 years, you're never moving on. You're never getting past the, the thing that destroyed your life. It's like, can we let that go? Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. I think that's at the end of the day, one of the biggest issues. I mean, there's, there's a, a myriad of issues in the recovery industry, if you will. But in, in recovery in general, the biggest issue I have is never giving up the identity of drug addict. It's like, no, that's a choice. Yeah. And, and at some point you can choose to no longer identify that way. This is something that Roman Gutierrez told me on my podcast. He said that his pastor challenged him. When he got saved, he was he was saved out of the gangster lifestyle, hardcore drugs, crazy lifestyle, fighting all the time. His pastor said, are you going to be a vato for Jesus or are you going to be a man of God? And he, that, you know, pissed him off in the moment, but he said that challenged him. And he said, I started reading every single day books, not just like yeah. obviously reading the Bible, but but books. He educated himself. He got he, he became an intelligent person. He could have a thoughtful conversation about things that aren't just like gang banging. I think that's something that you should begin to desire. You can change your as identity. You, as you further yourself from yeah. your lifestyle and the process of sanctification sets in, ultimately, I think that just means that you're, you're not 
living yeah. the way you were. The pornography mm-hmm. addiction. That's also a something that is run rampant in America. Yeah. Even in the church, there's a lot of, of that that happens. Yeah. Do you have anything to speak to with that? Is there anything that God did when you got saved that helped you shut that door? Yeah. You know, I would say that largely that it wasn't a problem for me when I got saved. I had sort of replaced it. I would put pornography in the category of marijuana as being a gateway drug. People say marijuana is a gateway drug. I would say that pornography is more of the gateway that leads to the marijuana that leads to the, it's, it's progressive, right? And it's not in the same category in a lot of the way we think, but I, I believe that psychologically it is, you know, it's a very similar chemical reaction in your brain to drugs, right? There's a similar kind of chasing the high with uh, pornography addiction. Mm-hmm. So I think it's valid to kind of put it in the category of a drug addiction, not a perfectly analogous way, but a similar way. And so I would say not just marijuana is the gateway drug. Pornography is the gateway drug. I bet if you did a study on this, I don't know how many sociological studies there are on this, but I bet you could find a connection between pornography and then eventual drug use. If you, wow. if you started tracing it, I would say, I mean, what, what are the two rampant things in our society right now? Opiates and pornography. If there's an addict out there and they're just at that state where they're just like, I just really, I can't stop. I don't like who I've become, Mm -hmm. but I'm addicted. Like, I don't know how to live with reality or my situation without getting high. I want to be high. What do you say to them? It, It sounds very cliche to say this, but the answer is really surrender. Because what you're doing is you're fighting a battle you can't win. And ultimately, the the results are going to be death, prison, or surrender. And that's what it comes down to. So you have to make a decision. What do you want to do? You're fighting a losing battle. You have three choices. And the best of those choices is surrender. The worst is you're dead somewhere in a ditch. And, and, that's, and that's just a reality. That's what every drug addict needs to, to grapple with is that I have to make a decision to surrender. And I think God really does want to set people free. That's what people need to know is he wants to set you free. He's not up in heaven going, ah, maybe if you're good enough, I'll think about it. No, he's, he's looking for people with hearts open to him to, to do a miracle. So I, that's what, that's, that's what I would say to anybody who's struggling with this and desires change. If you can be honest enough to recognize that you are addicted and you are hopeless without some help and the humility to say, this isn't going to work. That's where I think God lives is in that, that place of humility. Isaiah chapter six, uh, it's a very, very famous portion of scripture. It's Isaiah who, when he had a vision of God the presence of God in the temple. And Isaiah, in a moment of humility, says, woe is me, I am undone. When he experiences the presence of God, because God is so big, so powerful, and so holy that 
that moment is where God sends the seraphim to cleanse his lips. He puts a hot coal to Isaiah's lips. But that's that's a picture of a miracle. It's a picture of God's righteousness cleansing you. It's not something that Isaiah deserved or did on his own. It was, I believe, because of the humility. That's where God will fix it. And now it's documented.